Well, hello everyone and welcome to Yorkshire Gamer and this is the first podcast of 2024. I hope you had a fantastic festive season and a happy new year and you're ready to get going again with the Yorkshire Gamer podcast. And it always takes me a bit of time to get moving again in the new year and at least I've managed to get one episode out in January and that's today which is episode 52 and today I'm going to be talking to Giles Shapley, better known as Eric the Shed. Uh, He runs the Shed Wars blog and uh, recently he's had a move to a larger premises uh, following uh, his retirement and he's uh, opened that up to members of the public and various people that we're going to talk about later on. Those of you who've been following my wargaming projects, I've just finished the entire figure collection for the Battle of Mentana for the Italian Risorgimento, and that's just about 950 figures. And I am going to be putting the display game of the Battle of Mentana on at the York Show, Vapnatak, uh, which is held at York Racecourse on February the 4th. So if you're in the area, if you're at the show, come say hello and uh, you'll see the fruits of my last two years work. Um, I am currently battling through the Analog Hobbies Winter Paint Challenge and I'm well ahead of my uh, total that I'm aiming for um, but I do uh, or I am aware that I'm going to be ramping up a little bit more at work from February the 15th. Uh, So I'm trying to get front loaded with the points etc. But You don't want to listen to that. You want to listen to my guest. So sit back, get this on a cup of tea, uh, some hot cross buns, and get your painting ready, whatever you're going to do uh, for the next uh, couple of three hours. And uh, without further ado, here's an interview. Well, hello. Welcome, everybody, once again to the Yorkshire Gamer podcast. Christmas has been and gone, and we're here in 2024, and it's time to get the podcast rolling with another guest. I first spoke to today's guest at Salute last year, and he has been patiently waiting to come on the show ever since. Unfortunately, I've got a queue longer than the one for Westmoreland Street Chippy and Skipton on a Friday night, so less than a year is quite a quick turnaround for me. My guest is the host of one of the most popular blogs from the golden age of blogging, The Shed Wars. It's now a teenager, and instead of going off in a huff, sulking in a bedroom and smoking exotic cigarettes, it's actually behaving itself and still doing decent visitor numbers in difficult times for blogs. Better known on Tinterweb as Eric the Shed, a bit like Eric the Viking, but with less pillaging of religious sites and more 28mm figures. He has catalogued his gaming adventures on his site for many years and developed a strong following. But Shed Wars and Eric the Shed would be nothing without the real star of the show, The Shed. Starting in the suburbs of that there London, it's recently moved out to a more rural location, rebuilt, refreshed and now open to the public. So let's give a warm welcome to the man himself, Eric the Shed, and his alter ego, it's Giles Shapley. Hello, Giles. Hello, Ken. How are you doing, sir? I am very well, young man. Very well. Uh, lovely to speak to you today. You've been you've been waiting a while, but we got there in the end, didn't we? Definitely. I cannot believe it's been nine months since you and I caught up at Salute. 
I know, crazy, isn't it? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely crazy. But there, but there we go. We we finally got here. Um, have you done anything like this before, Giles? No, I haven't. Uh, well, actually, tell a lie. Um, in in my business career, which I am now glad to say is over, um, I did some podcasts and some training and so on. But no, this is the first of its kind in the should we say the hobby sphere. So delighted oh, to be brilliant. with you. Brilliant, excellent, excellent. Well, before you get too comfortable, the first thing that we do. Um, is a little bit of an icebreaker is the four minute challenge um, and that is an opportunity for you to uh, get your, your your mouth moving and get yourself ready to go uh, and just summarize if you can your uh, wargaming hobby in four minutes don't worry if you miss any bits out i'm sure we'll cover it later on um so are you ready to go i'm ready indeed so um, I won't start with the old adage, once upon a time, but uh, <laughs> it's like certainly it would have been at a time when I was in my, should we say, probably about five or six. And uh, the person who's most responsible for bringing me into this wonderful hobby was my father, who mm. sadly has passed away. But um, he was very old fashioned, but he was totally nuts on military history, toy soldiers, movies, history, castles, museums, you name it my brother and I got dragged around everywhere to see it. And I suppose a lot of our generation, our very first Christmas presents were either plastic toy guns or plastic toy soldiers. Um, although I was rather fortunate to um, be given one year a very large collection of Britain's detail soldiers. Ooh. And uh, my father and I and my younger brother, we would set these up on the lounge floor and fire classic HG Wells style um, matchsticks at our ranks of troops and that's really where the hobby started um, and I still have very fond memories of those times and as I grew older obviously my taste somewhat changed and more and more models became available so moving from fx 132nd scale into HO scale um, the, should we just say that my collection started to grow and by the time I was 13 I was in the senior school and I had this passion for history, passion for military history in particular, but also I wanted to do something with all these toy soldiers that I had. I should add that none of them were painted, of course, so they were all the classic yellows and greys and reds and browns. But <laughs> I founded at my school the War Games Society. Total membership was two. Um, cool. That was myself and my best friend at the time. Um, we managed to persuade one of the housemasters to allow us to take over a small room in the attic of the school for our society meeting room, whereupon we acquired two tables and we were able to go up there and uh, throw a few dice and play against the old airfix rule books that were around at the mm. time. I think they're written by Bruce Porry and a couple of yeah. other chaps. And this was great fun up until where it got to about five, six o'clock in the evening, where the sixth formers would then materialize into the attic for their, should we say, post dinner smoke. And whereupon <laughs> we would then be turfed out of our room and told to take our small toy soldiers elsewhere. But we got the bug. And um, over the next three, four years, uh, the society membership grew steadily. But um, it was pretty much a place where we could go and hide from the said sixth formers until six o'clock. And then I suppose around the age of 17, 18, a, a neighbor of mine um, who was a year younger than me um, said, Giles, you have got to come and play this new game. And I got caught up in the whole role playing adventure of Dungeons and Dragons, whereupon all my plastic soldiers then subsequently disappeared. And I probably spent the next five or six years in the world of Dungeons and Dragons and Aftermath and Gamma World and, and basically allowing my imagination to run free. And of course, this was at a time where 
I progressed through my A-levels. I had made a decision that I wasn't going to go to university and I could then spend effectively my non-working week playing games. But all these things come to an end. And by the time I was 21, my parents were quite keen to kick me out of the house. So uh, <laughs> I took on board a job up in Lincolnshire, which was a good two and a half hour, three drive from home. And I remember leaving and thinking, well, that's probably the end of my gaming days. And it certainly was for probably the next 10 years, uh, because by the time I was 22, I just discovered the delights of beer, ladies, and uh, really wanted to forge my career ahead. And uh, the next 10 years passed very, very quickly. As my career developed, I probably drank far too much beer and I probably went out with too many young ladies. Um, fortunately, one said young lady decided that she was going to marry me. And at the age of 30, we got engaged and got married and we decided to settle down and have a family. Yeah. And this was at the age, I was probably about 32 at the time. So we're talking, it's like the millennium around mm -hmm. about 1997, 98. And I'm sitting at home. My wife is upstairs feeding the child, um, my daughter, Molly, and uh, I'm bored. There's only so many times you can get up in the middle of the night. Yeah. There's only so much you can watch on TV. And I wanted to do something differently. And it was by chance a very good friend of mine phoned me up and said, Giles, what are you doing? I said, not a lot. He said, well, I've been playing war games at a friend of mine down in Farnborough. Do you oh, fancy brilliant. coming along? So uh, I thought, well, get the boss to approve. Hopped in the car, drove down to Farnborough, and I met up with a bunch of guys who I'm delighted to say that I'm still playing with on a regular basis. Oh, and they had a shed. And it was an old, it was the, the shed belonged to one of the chap's father-in-laws who again has sadly passed away, but he was into model railways and he had a big table, probably a good 12 foot size table. He had all the old terrain that he built for his model railway. And there we were playing with Napoleonics in 15 millimeter scale, American Civil War, World War II. And uh, I really got hooked on the whole thing. And it was at that point in time, I thought, right, Giles, you need to have your own base. And rather fortuitously, well, our home was coming up for an extension. We had a second child, um, and there's only so long that you can keep a child in a small cover, which is described as a third bedroom. <laughs> and so my wife and I decided to embark on an extension on the house. And I worked out the numbers, and I worked out it was cheaper to put a big shed at the end of the garden to store all of our furniture for nine months rather than put it all into storage. So oh, I got the boss's approval, and by the end of spring, a new shed had been erected at the bottom of the garden, but of course it was full of all of the, uh, the family um, stuff until the extension was finished. Once the extension was finished, I was in there and that became my new man cave. Um, I kitted it out, insulated it, put the wiring in um, and basically built a big 12 foot table in said shed. Mm. And that's really where, in a sense, my hobby kicked off. But um, I'm delighted to report that probably three years into building the, after building the shed, I then built the blog and it was at that time that the group that i've been playing with at farnborough effectively split up and people went off and did their own different things we've we've all since come back together but effectively my shed became the new base and it because and there were effectively just two of us playing there for about probably two years just two guys playing games every monday night but what happened the blog started to attract people and attract interest and with posts on the tmp and lead adventure people were reaching out to me saying, oh, I gather you live in southwest London. Could I come along and play? Mm. And so now 
I probably have a gaming group in excess of 20 people who oh, regularly visit in different mm. times and different places and so on. So that's where my hobby's got to today. Brilliant. Brilliant. We went a long way over four minutes there, but well, you, were, so you were doing that. so well. You were doing so well. I'll just let you go. Keep going. Okay. <laughs> Which is brilliant. Um, have you done most of your gaming then within the shed environment, or have you been a member of a, a local war games club at all? I have been to a couple of war games clubs locally. Um, mm. One didn't really quite work out. Um, the other one I still retain a membership of, stroke contact with. There's a bunch of really good guys. This is the one down at Hampton Court. It's called the Imbercourt War Games Society. Right. They are always looking for new members. They're a welcoming bunch of guys. They play every <clears throat> they play every Sunday, and a number of those guys actually frequent the shed when they can as well. But I oh. typically find that my weekends, Saturday and Sunday, tend to be focused on either me going to see my family. Or my in-laws so it becomes difficult to do a sunday afternoon game yeah yeah so are they are they based in hampton court the area or hampton court the building uh, no they're based <laughs> i wish it was hampton court the building. Uh, no they're actually based in the police federation headquarter police federation's uh social club which is just right. outside hampton court right. a number of them are ex-police officers i seem to have acquired a lot of ex-police officer friends i'm not too sure why but um a lot of them are into war gaming as well yeah I don't know. I don't know how that fits together. Yeah. So um, over those years, then um, you started with the, the quarry rules, uh, which I think many, many, uh, many of us have. Have you still got a love for that old school type war gaming or have you moved on um, to the more modern sets now? I think, well, it depends on how you would classify modern. Yeah. Um, the uh, our staple set of rules that we tend to use in the shed for a number of reasons, but predominantly because they're well known and they deliver big games with fast play, tend to be the Warlord games set of Black Powder, Pike and Shot, and Hail Caesar. Yeah. But we do play outside of those rule sets for other periods and for other types of games. But for the yeah. big games, we tend to stick with those because they deliver what we need in the time that we have typically on, on an evening's in entertainment. So you, you, you kind of think, I still think of those rules as, as being new, but they're 12 years old, maybe even older. 12, I think years they old. might even be older than that. Um, yeah. we, I came to them quite late. We, I used to play a lot of Warmaster, which was the original Rick, Rick Priestley set that was written when he was working for Games Workshop. And then, of course, Warmaster was the genesis for, for Black Powder and for Hail Caesar. So we were familiar with the sort of mechanics. But there are a lot of other rule sets that we play. Yeah, it's, it's just interesting. That I still think of them as new, and I just go, oh, hey, oh, I'm not playing them, they're new rules. <laughs> yeah. And then, as you say, they're probably 15-plus years old. And uh, um, how do you find it? I, I'm always interested in talking to people who play um groups of rules um it's something that we do with general de brigade and and de craig's constant and um to your guns and, and all that we we play a lot of dave brown rules and although it's nice to be familiar with the rules crossing over from one to the other can get a little bit confusing because it's so similar do you have that with hail caesar pike and shot and and black powder where you end up doing going down one line, oh, it's definitely plus one for this, and then it turns out it's another set of rules. Yes, we do, and uh, <laughs> it, 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 all the time. And it typically tends to be a case of 
I, we've got a whole load of what I would call ready reference sheets that, mm. you know, certain things we've we've done to make the game either more playable or to fit a particular table or to fit a particular scenario. But movement is a classic, whereas, for example, in, in Hail Caesar, movement typically tends to be six inches for a foot unit. Yeah. In Black Powder, it's 12 inches. You know, and that can have a massive difference um, <laughs> when you get three orders. <laughs> you know, you yeah. can have it. Yeah. So th th we tend to try and adjust it so that they, more often than not, for example, rules and ranges, uh, movement and ranges, they will be commensurate with one set and the other. So they're all, we're all playing on the same level field. But of course, they're, they're all the nuances that differ for each game set. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, you've got the different. Uh, traits within each unit they'll be different but they might be using the same terminology so uh, but yes that, that it's always a when when we're starting out a game because we play every week but we never play the same game twice in succession if that makes sense yeah yeah so yeah. last week for example we played black powder um the next game that we've got on the table i think is saga um and then the next game after that might be muskets and tomahawks so in that particular instance I will always go back to the rule set and read, do a 20-minute skim through before the game kicks off, just so in my own mind I can remember the sequence of play, the standard rules, and so on. But no, uh, it's, it, I'm yet to decide. I'm yet to make my mind up. I, I don't know whether having that familiar base for a set of rules um, is is good, or whether having completely different rule sets for different periods that have totally different mechanisms that you can't get confused with. I've not made my mind up it, yet. I'm open. I'm open to suggestions. It's interesting, Ken, because <laughs> one of the things that we found, for example, as an example, um, just before COVID hit, you know, hit the UK, um, I was working with a fr sitting with a friend, and we were deciding well, what our next projects were going to be. And we both agreed that actually the Wars of the Roses was going to be something that we really wanted to do. You know, and Perry's had the fabulous range of products out and so on. And so we both started putting together some factions for Wars of the Roses. And mm. we always had a mindset that we were going to use Hail Caesar as the rule set. Mm. Because the Perry's had put some orders of battle and some stats up on their Facebook page. And then all of a sudden, dropping through the post comes War Games Illustrated with Andy Callan's Never Buying the Billboards. Yeah. And so we thought, well, let's give this a whirl. And we played a game and it worked quite well and it gave us a good experience. And then we said, okay, can we use it with more than two players? And so we then had a, a four player game and then a six player game. And it seemed to work. We didn't break it too much. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing we know is we then had this great idea that we were going to try and fight every single one of the battles of Wars of the Roses in chronological order using Nevermind Bill Hooks. And having spoken to Andy, he said it was never designed to do this, but he was absolutely delighted that we did do it. Yeah. So, and that just took us on another path. Now, if we ever play Wars of the Roses again, and we still get the rules out, we still play the games, we'll use Bill Hooks. We won't use yeah. Hail Caesar. And again, you know, when, um, oh God, when the Men Who Would Be Kings came out, I thought this is a perfect foil for my colonial adventures, you know, whether it be the Zulus or whether it be um, the adventures in the Sudan or so on. But, we just couldn't get our heads around the rules. We, we got our heads around the rule set, but it just didn't deliver to us mm. what we felt was the thematic fast play that we wanted. And we went back to Black Powder. And we did two or three games where we did the same scenario using both sets of rules. And the unanimous opinion was Black Powder delivered us a better product. Yeah. I, th I think that's very much the the, the 
the drive for people is to try rules and then find something that they enjoy yes. that works for that for that for them as a group and um, black powder we don't like them here um but we tend to use as i say general de brigade general de armee that branch of of, of rule sets um and for you know for reasons why we you know for some reason that clicks with us for some reason black powder didn't but i think it's important that we that people kind of in, investigate these different types of rules and see which ones uh, are best for them um and like you say you found um never mind the bell hooks um as a way into the wars of the roses and, and expanded that way beyond the you know, it's a skirmish game at the end yes. of the day, isn't it? Um, Absolutely. I, mean, <laughs> I saw um, uh, my mate Von Ketteringham Fraser from uh, the YouTube channel. He was playing Baron's War um, on a 12 by 6 table with masses of figures. Um, and that's what I love about wargaming is that uh, you can try and keep the big game down, but it will always be people will go, you know what? I need another thousand figures on here before it works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, which is which is wonderful to see. And great to see that you've done that with uh, with with Bill Hooks as well. Um, is there a period or sort of time frame that you really enjoy gaming in, or are you across the board? I would say that I am across the board. Um, I was sitting down with one of my um, gaming friends the other day, and we were going through that that classic and you know table of all the historical periods from the ancient Egyptians through to, for want of a better word, science fiction um, yeah. and fantasy in between. And did we cover off every single base um, between us? And pretty much yes. Um, I have preference. I have have preferred areas to play. Um, the one area that I I suppose I'm not particularly keen on is World War Two later later World War Two. Um, I don't know why the idea of just having hundreds of tanks on the table just doesn't appeal. Um, but if there is a period, it will quite possibly be colonials, which is something that I've always enjoyed doing. And that's um, one of the probably um, lesser played periods, I would say. Um, you're kind of looking at Napoleonics and World War Two as you as your big two, aren't you? Really. Yeah. Um, and then cl colonial. Um, it's it certainly we've we've spoke a lot about. It. I did an episode um, with Carlo Pagano, who brought back to life the sands of Sudan. Um, Peter Gilder's rules, which are a massive hoot and a really really good game. Um, is that something that you've gone big into then? The colonial. Have you got a big collection for that? Yes. Um... And I should, I should say one of the reasons why, I mentioned about my father right at the beginning. Um, mm. My father was probably the world's biggest Zulu fan, as in the movie. <laughs> in the yeah. um, and he, I suppose, he took me and my brother to see the film when it first came out at the cinema, mm. or possibly the second screening. Um, and then through the years, of course, it was the reason why we got a videotape recorder at home because it was on ITV one afternoon and we didn't. So, it, and it was one of those iconic films that, I think everybody in the wargaming world loves to watch. Who who doesn't yeah. love the the colour, the terrain, the, the action, all of that? It's, it's such an iconic movie. And for me, I've always wanted to bring Zulu to the tabletop. Um, and about seven, eight years ago, as my father was lying in his hospice, I said, I'm going to do something which I should have done a long time ago, is I'm going to do this. Um, yeah. and I know you won't see it, but it's in a sense I want to do it in memorial for you. So I went out and I bought 
a load of plastic and metal 24 foot. I bought a lot of Zulus. I kept adding more Zulus, more Zulus, to the point now where I can actually field over a thousand Zulus on the table. Um, All of whom are mounted, for want of a better word, on beer mats that are 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres. Because one Mm. of the things I've learnt doing big games, and I'm sure you and your other listeners will appreciate, is that you do not want to have every single little figure mounted on its own base. And even in Sabo trays, it's an absolute pain in the art, sorry, pain to move them around. So I have a thousand plus Zulus. I have probably two to 300 British and uh, colonials, Boas, NNC, all of that. And along with all of the classic Zulu terrain and so on. And about five years ago, I put together a Zulu weekend in the old shed. And we fought Rourke's Drift and Isan Luana in two days. And it was absolutely brilliant. And I was hooked. And I try and recreate the Zulu game every year for a new bunch of people Mm. and it works in a very again using black powder as its core rule set but if you looked at it you wouldn't think it's black powder but each player effectively is controlling a few squads inside the the, uh, encampment and then two or three players are controlling the zulus and they have to manage time manage when the zulus attack and not attack and so it becomes more of a managerial just like a game rather than just a i'll throw them all over over the barricades at once so and that's great fun and then that then developed into playing more and more of the battles of the Zulu Wars, learning to read about them. Um, and I was due to go down to South Africa to go and visit the battlefields with mm. Ian Knight. But unfortunately, that all fell apart when COVID hit. So that's Ooh, on the back sure. burner at the moment. Um, and one day I will drag myself down to South Africa to go and see that. And then, of course, if you're going to do the, uh, the Zulu Wars, you've got to do the Sudan. Yep. So I've now got over 1,200 Mardis painted up. Um, oh, I've built Khartoum. Um, yeah. I've got most of the um, big units that fought down there in terms of the British. So ranging from Indian Lancers through to the Camel Corps. Um, and as I said, I've built Khartoum. And I will use that as a basis for both skirmish games, but also for big battles. Yeah. So we fought Abu Clear and Guinness and Underman mm. and so on. So one of the things that I like to try to do is to take the the battles of history and bring them to the tabletop as opposed to just a straightforward encounter game or a made-up environment yeah no that's good that's good that's a very much my style of gaming as well i'm going to talk a lot about the shed experience and, and everything everything later on um but for regular players you mentioned this earlier on you you use the shed as a place for friends to meet and game um so do you have a regular club not club night but a regular shed night yes so the shed night is was and will be monday nights Uh, and more often than not we will start at like 6 30 quarter seven and we'll roll through till about half past ten so Mm. we and the ambition is always to have the game set up before the players arrive um with briefings available for as and when they arrive and then more often than not unless somebody has has expressed a preference um we will dice to see which side who plays on which and most nights i will typically cap at six players any more than that tends to be um a little bit too chaotic or you get the sense sometimes where you've got too many players playing that they're only going to end up commanding a small brigade perhaps of half a dozen units and before they know it their game's over or they haven't got anything left and then somebody else is going to have to pass them something of theirs to play with for the rest of the evening. So by having six players, three aside, 
um, on an 18 foot table means that everybody's fighting across a six foot front and they will probably have more than enough toys to play with. That's the benefit of having that. The games themselves will typically be set out a week in advance. So I have a WhatsApp group and it really is, there's nothing too complicated about it. I send a message out the day after we played the first game on the Monday night and I say, okay, who's around for next week? Because some of the guys who come along are working shifts or they've got family commitments or what have you. And with the exception of a couple, the rest of it's open spaces. So in other words, it's first come, first serve. But if somebody has been there for three, four Mondays on the trot and somebody's really desperate to come along, then I'll, I'll put them in front of the other person. But I mentioned to you there was one chap who was playing with me when with the shed, shed first opened for two years, and it's just the two of us. He has an automatic entry to the game. <laughs> uh, he's called Mark. He's my longest playing partner, for want of a better word. So he'll always get a um, a, a, a space. And there, there we are, Mark. It's, it's immortalised on this podcast for you, so no, you know it's true. Um, you can always refer back to this if exactly. you say, oh, no, not this yeah. week, mate. But so yeah the, so the game will typically be set up at that point of view so monday nights i mentioned it's typically monday um, for the next 12 weeks it's on hold it's now tuesday night because my wife is learning how to keep bees and she's on a bee training course so uh, i don't know how you train bees but uh no i i, I was i was unaware of such a thing i had a bee <laughs> training course that's what my friend said to me does she have to go every week just to get a bee and i said <laughs> i don't know but no the ambition is for her she wants to keep bees she wants to make honey, and I want to turn that honey into mead. So, uh, so everybody's happy. Hey, fantastic, fantastic! Yeah. The bees are happy as well. Exactly, exactly. Um, do you do? I mean, we obviously we met up at um, Salute last year. Yeah. Um, do you do a lot of war game shows in the area? Is it a regular thing for you to visit them? Yeah, I think you know. Obviously, living down here in the southeast, um, we are blessed or cursed, I suppose you could say, with Salute. Um, Salute is a fabulous show. I do remember when it used to be over in um, the other place, in Knightsbridge. Um, But since moving to the XL, it's obviously got bigger and there are more and more people there, but it shows how Mm. big the hobby is, and I think it's a great showcase. Um, I also try to attend the shows that are over in Reading and Newbury. Um, And there's um, there's one which I can never remember, is it, um, that takes place down in Kent, which I've been to a couple of times. But that typically tends to be it. Um, I suppose my... My biggest frustration for the shows is that you tend to see the same same stands over and over again, um, and they're selling the same things over and over again. And I wish, in a way, some of the show organisers were put to one side. I don't know. This is the new zone where there are new manufacturers or new people coming along. Perhaps giving them a discount to, to exhibit their wares and giving them an opportunity to showcase their products to other people. But you know, yeah. I think when you go to the shows, you can see that the industry is in pretty good health, um, albeit. The average age demographic looks, you know, should we say the wrong side of 50? Or the right side of 50, depending oh, on which way you want to look at. <laughs> <laughs> well, in my case, the wrong, the, at the moment, I'll be 60 in, in 18 months' time. So it's probably getting to the point where it should be the wrong side of 60. But yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there we, there we go. Um, but uh, there are quite a, a few people coming through from the GW side of things and, um, Games like Bolt Action and what have you that are not my cup of tea do bring new people in yes. to the hobby and then us big gamers can grab them and push them in our direction. Well, one of the things that I'm very keen <laughs> in the shed, um, our, one of the guys who regularly comes along is actually the son of a gamer I used to game with. And yeah. I remember him when he was about 11, um, probably even younger than that. 
He's now in his mid-twenties, and he comes and plays in the shed regularly because he li- a, lives just down the road, and B, I think he wants to escape from his girlfriend for at least one night a week. And he's only 25, so uh, he's the same age as my oh, children. Yeah. Neither of my kids are particularly interested in what dad does. They think dad runs away yeah. into the shed and does strange things. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> Thankfully, my lad's, my lad's sort of mildly interested. He does uh, he does a bit of Warhammer 40K, a lot of D&D. Um, and then every year, the, the, the big show in Leeds, Fiasco, yeah. um, he comes along and helps at dad's table. Oh, brilliant. Because um, he can't believe how many people come up and talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. They say, oh, but you know, loads of people know who you are, Dad. Say, I'm not just, I'm not just stupid, you know. <laughs> so, um, just to finish the first section off, like we always do with everyone on, on the show, is we talk about the Venn diagram of wargaming. Yep. Uh, and, and this is where we break down the hobby into four different areas because it is a, a multi multifaceted hobby. There's so many different parts. Oh, absolutely. Um, and um, the four I've got are wargamer painter collector and historian and how do you uh, fit into that giles how do you feel find yourself in those four sections slap bang in the middle yeah so just to qualify historian as in i love to read up about the periods that we're, that we're playing and get yeah. into the the, the the detail of of the specific battles so in other words for example when i put on the battle of uh hat in not so long ago you know i discovered that the um the muslims were effectively burning brush so how do i incorporate that into the battle how do i incorporate the fact that the crusader army had been marching for two days without any water so of course they all suffered with stamina hits from day one um so the historian side how do i incorporate that into the games as opposed to well, how big were the armies or how what types of weapons were they using it's more about how do i incorporate that into the game painter well, um, I have a bit of a reputation amongst my group that I seem to be painting a vast number of figures far too quickly. Um, <laughs> my painting style is very, very simple. It's block yeah. colour, covered then with either ink or with an army painter dip, and then varnished. Um, in the last three months, I've cracked out about 600 hoplites. So I've brought my Greek army up to 1,000 strong. So I'll be knocking out probably somewhere between 100 and 200 figures a month. And my ambition is to generate a new period every year. Right. Good. Um, and I'll source the products through what I can find are good deals on eBay or via the internet. In terms of the other two, player, Wargamer, well, I play regularly. I want to play more, but the projects I have embarked on won't allow me to do that. Um, whereas a lot of my other friends who have retired early seem to be playing every afternoon. And you're yeah. on the, all these WhatsApp groups. And, John, you know who you are because I know you played five days last week. Um, <laughs> uh, you yeah, basically seem to be playing all the time. Um, and then uh, there's the fourth one. What was it? Wargamer, painter, historian, and collector. Collector, yeah. Well, I my shed has already – I moved into this wonderful new shed. You can probably see some of it behind you. Yeah, I'm just in a yeah. third of it. Um, the other two thirds has got the big table set up and I've already run out of space in here. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Hoarder, I think is probably the right word. <laughs> yeah, no, nothing wrong, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Um, is there, you know, you're painting these big, uh, big armies and you, and you like say you're trying to get a new period um, in every year. Is there an army that you will, you always go back to and chuck an extra unit in here and there? Um, 
yes um so during the course of last year um i added a number of extra pike units to my piker shop because i didn't have enough pike units um i added more units to my uh vikings and saxons because i didn't have enough uh saxons on the table i wanted I, i'm trying to get to what i would call the magic 2000 per game on the table and so that means so for example i can now fit hastings which i could I, which i when i first did hastings six seven years ago i think i had about 1100 1200 figures on the table i can now get to mm. 1800 so yeah. so basically the game is two thirds is a third larger than it originally set out to be mm. because nothing can beat the spectacle of having hundreds of figures on the table it's a bit like an adrenaline junkie so i'm adding to units as and when i see them and then a friend of mine the other day said i've got 60 vikings and plastic vikings are you interested in them i said yep and so they're sitting in a box waiting to be primed and painted yeah and do you do you find yourself building for a specific battle you know all right I've, i need these units to do this this battle are you filling orders of battle or are you or are you just randomly adding to randomly battle? adding is i think the best way to describe yeah. it so the, the the current project as i mentioned the greek army the Greek project started off as a simple, oh, I should do some Greek hoplites because I haven't got any Peloponnesian mm. Wars. Plus, I could throw in some fantasy stuff that I've got and have a fantasy army. Um, it's then now migrated to the fact that I've got over 600 phalangites to paint up and about 100 Macedonian horse to paint up. So it then be Greeks versus Macedonians. And of course, if you're going to do Greeks versus Macedonians, you're going to then have to start thinking about Persians. So... I'm now thinking I've actually only painted 240 Spartans. So I've got to have another 60 Spartans and I haven't even started the Persians yet. So yeah. um, if, I, if you interview me in two years time, three years time, hopefully I will be, I would have fought Thermopylae and uh, the, um, oh God, um, what's the other bat, big bat, Plataea and Marathon. Mm. And we'll be then moving into Alexander's Conquest, in, into Guagamala and the other ones. Oh, and then we've got the whole Wars of Succession. But again, that lends itself to a big epic table with elephants and vast numbers of cavalry and so on. We, had, we, we, we did a, not the Hastings, but we did a, effectively a scenario last week, a few weeks ago, which was titled The Battle of Etchingham, which was a small village somewhere between Hastings and, and London. It was a what-if scenario. And we had over 180 Norman horse on the table. And it looked amazing when they're charging yeah. towards that, that Saxon line. So, yeah. yeah, more figures, bigger games. That's the way we want to go. Not necessarily more units, I think I should add, though. Yeah, sometimes a bigger unit yes. itself is is um, is part of the thing. You know, the, the, the Italian Risorgimento project I've just literally finished today Um is a very small battle but so i've reduced the figure scale from down to about one to ten one to twelve to make the units bigger and make it more impactful on the table yeah. rather than having little five or six man units running around which I've i think that, that's exactly of. my philosophy because there's only so many what we found in, a, in an evening's play is there's only so many units either a an army can be commanded with mm. or a player can handle and the yeah. optimum number seems to be somewhere between 12 and 18 units tops, perhaps in three different, for the better word, brigade structures. 
for a player to command to be able to fight the game out in three and a half hours. Yeah. In using the rule sets we have. So if those armies, infantry units go from 24 to 32 or to 36 or to 40, you're still using the same number of units. Just a bigger footprint. Just a bigger footprint. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Um, something we talked about on the last show that you've, you've kind of mentioned that um, in the early part of this Venn diagram was um, the history um, yes. and the war gaming. We had a bit of a debate on the last show about the um, complexity and playability. And I, I tend to find sometimes when you get you're going towards the playability end of the scale when it comes to rule, you're missing out on the history. So how important is it for you for your games to feel as much as they possibly can, like an historical period? How much you you know is you want the historical tactics, you want the historical outcomes? Um, good question. Um, I think if there were, if if the if, if it was if there was a coin and one said playability and one said historical accuracy, I would prefer to come down on the playability side. Yeah. Um, because I thought, I thought you were going to say the edge then. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'd come down on the playability side because yeah. ultimately what we're doing is we're here to have fun and to play games in a social environment. That that's my primary reason why I sit and spend hours blogging and painting and so on, is to enjoy the camaraderie and the social aspect of the hobby that mm. comes from doing all those other, that hard work beforehand. Um, so playability to me is more important, but I think that by taking a competent or a good rule set, you can then, if the, if it's, if, if, if it think of it as a sandbox, you can then add the layer of historical complexity into that rule box. So mm. if we take something as simple as Towton, for example, where, the Lancastrians were marching into the, the into the face of the storm, you know, the snowstorm. Well, it becomes relatively straightforward by saying, okay, well, the Yorkists can either fling their arrows further, or the Lancastrians can throw their or fire their arrows in a shorter distance. Mm. Um, communication is clearly going to be affected by said snowstorm, so we'll reduce all command ranges down, which has an impact on the game. Um, morale might be affected because it's bloody freezing. Um, so again, they could be modifiers from. So you take the rule set and adjust it to, according to the historic events of that game, of yeah. events of that battle. Does yeah, does that, that make yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah, that does. Yeah. So it's about trying to, and for me, it's about looking at those different battles. Battles were rarely fought with two even sides. Very rarely fought with both sides matched up in the same number of guns or same number of foot mm. or same number of horse. But if you look at a lot of battles, and certainly my experience when I did the Wars of the Roses, was that there were very few battles where it was literally, oh, they just charged straight at each other. Terrain, weather, time of day, something might have happened 24 hours earlier. So, for example, mm. at the Battle of Northampton, the entire Lancastrian army was excommunicated. Rightly so, rightly so. Well, and they also had a they also had a rainstorm, so that affected the, the early handguns and the cannons at the time. So how do you put that onto the battle rule set that you have? But but not but we don't play to such a point that says, well, no guns can fire because of course weather changes. So you just introduce a mechanic that says, well, each turn maybe the weather clears or the or it dries out or whatever. So yeah, that's really effectively where we'll come from. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, it's nice to hear. Um, so, good place to take a little break here, um, okay. and then we'll be back very shortly for our regular big game chat. 
Okay, uh, we're in the second part of the show, and regular listeners will know um, this is our little big game chat where um, my guests, uh, when they come on, uh, chat to me about big games, uh, whether they like it or not. <laughs> it's sections, the section's always there. Um, so, uh, so the first question, Giles, is aspect to everyone who comes on the show because th there are different definitions to big game. Um, so, what when I say big game, what picture does that conjure up in your mind? Big game is big table, lots of soldiers on the table, and multiplayer. Excellent. My my definition as well. None of this bit of paper with thousands of figures and each little blocks no. I, 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 is it the visual aspect then um you know I, I was joking there about craig spiel but that little block doesn't get me juices flowing whereas a massive load of figures on a table that visual aspect for me is that's what i like um is, is it same for you absolutely and i think for me it's also looking at i don't want to sound egotistical here uh, but it's knowing that every single one of those little figures on the table by and large has been painted by yours truly yeah um and the man hours and everything that's gone into to, to achieving that and get and getting that positive reaction from the people who i'm playing with that to me is and then knowing at the end of the evening everybody says thank you and then the subsequent posts that come back saying hey great game really enjoyed it or as uh, one of my friends this morning said gutted i wasn't there for last week <laughs> when i put the latest <laughs> post up on the blog so all of that all of that helps and and that's in a way what and, and the, for example the blog that's what keeps me going mm. is knowing that again that positive affirmation that i'm doing something right yeah and i think that's i think that's um a good way or a good point to look at is that um personal sense of achievement when you've produced something that even if it's just yourself looking at it in your own room it's it, you've done that um and when it fills the table and you go i've done all that yeah. there is a, a massive sense of achievement isn't there and you, i don't think people should be you know, ashamed of, of the, you know, or, or I'm not, don't want to blow me on trumpet here. Fuck, blow your trumpet, mate, because it looks the business. Yes. And I'm, not, and I'm the first one to admit I'm not the best painter in the world. But mm. when you're playing, for want of a better word, with toy soldiers and you're standing two to three feet away from them, you don't need to see the whites of the eyes. You don't need to see every single belt and button painted in. It's that total visual effect of seeing thousands of infantry lined up or hundreds of horses lined up on a hill on a battlefield that that and it's the little boy in you that looks down when you get down to eye level and you're looking across the field that you get that you know that same feeling that you have when you went around and saw your grandfather's model railway set and and when you go to these big museums and you see these dioramas you know we were up at um we were over at waterloo earlier this year or last year i should say and they've got this wonderful diorama set up in the hall of the museum and you go in and you think, and people are going, wow, look at that. And you can see all these people looking and mm. gasping. And me and my one of my gaming traps are, chums are standing there looking at thinking, well, we have that out on the table every week, but it could yeah. be different every week. So, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's that sort of reaction. Yeah, and I think um, that brings people 
outsiders, people who are not necessarily war gamers, it, it's a spectacle that, that can be viewed. Um, you know, I've seen some absolutely magnificently painted figures um, and wonderful terrain on a two foot or three foot square, but it's not drawing people in because it, it doesn't have that, that look at me kind of thing yep. about it. Um, whereas in photographs, you can do that with a very small setup. Um, but with a with a bigger game and lots of figures, and like you say, they don't necessarily need to be golden demon standard painted. It, it's the it's the mass, it's the overall effect that that drags people in. And if you're getting people at you know at the Waterloo Museum going, oh, this is all right, yeah, uh, the, the, there's a there's hope for the hobby yet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Fantastic. That's what I would like to see. Um, so, obviously, you've gone through these periods in your life with your wargaming where you've had different groups of friends and kind of they're coming back together now. Um, is friendship a big part of that long-term big game thing? It's probably the most important part. Yeah. Um you don't make friends painting figures um, because you're sitting there. I, I think I've only ever had one painting session with somebody else. Um, so typically when we paint or when we're building terrain, actually terrain slightly different because it might be on a scale where you might need somebody else to help you. Mm. But by and large, when you're researching or painting, you'll be doing it on a one-to-one. But for me, my it, the friendship, the social side is the most important part. And interestingly, a couple of years back, well, actually three years back when we were living in the Surbiton, um, some of my uh, mates came over and helped me put one of the many extensions on my last shed. Um, and at the end of the uh, day, um, I invited them and all of their wives to come back for a barbecue in the garden. And you've got to remember that I've been playing games with these guys every Monday night, for some of them, for seven or eight years. Yeah. Now, they'd all met my wife having walked through the house and met my children and watched my children grow. But I'd, I'd hardly ever met any of their partners. And my wife had certainly never met any of their partners. As far as she was concerned, we were all strange blokes that are doing something strange at the end of the garden. Yeah. Um, and so all these wives turned up for this barbecue. And they all thought we were all going to be completely odd. Well, suffice mm -hmm. to say, several um, bottles of Rioja and several glasses of homebrew, um, everybody had a riotous time. And so now the Wargamers Barbecue is a fixed event in the diary. And oh, this year, um, I, as part of the launch of the business, which we'll talk about later on, I invited um, Dan from Wargames Illustrated and Andy Callan to come down and join us. And I made sure it coincided with the Wargamers Barbecue. So we got them completely pissed um, <laughs> on a Saturday night in our new garden. And that we all sat down, I think it was 28 of us all sat down for dinner. Um, oh, nice. fabulous evening and it's meant now that the, for the better word our partners have all now met the other partners and realised that their husbands aren't that particularly odd they just yeah. have an odd hobby <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's good so, to, so the that's social side is really really important and it's it's beyond the wargaming side it's about sharing memories about sharing experiences as well as clearly sharing the love of, of, our, little, of our little men and toy soldiers Looking back over the, the the years, many years you've been gaming, then what are the the kind of standout games that you remember from from your youth or from last week, whatever, whatever um, 
you really, really enjoyed. I, I guess a thought to this, um, because obviously you pre-armed me with a few questions and it's yeah. all, but um, I think I've got two, actually three, that I, and I'll be very brief. Towton, without a shadow of a doubt, was perhaps one of the best games we've ever fought. It took us six hours on a Saturday afternoon to fight using Bill Hooks. We had the best part of 2,000 plus soldiers on the table. And we all agreed right at the beginning that the game would finish at five o'clock, whatever happened. Yeah. Because at five o'clock, the beers would be open and the missus would all turn, the, the wives would all turn up at six o'clock. So we fought, and at half past four, the game was in a balance. And I did something that I probably don't normally do in a war game, which is be overly rash. Mm. I charged my king, Edward the um, Sixth, would it be? Edward the Sixth? Yeah, Edward the Sixth. Um, with his royal retinue into the Lancastrian centre. And he routed two units in front of him, which then caused a cascade effect across the whole front Lancastrian line. And within 15 minutes, what was left of the Lancastrian army had virtually been routed off the table. So it literally was one of those moments where it was going to be a stalemate. It was going to be a draw. We would have run out of time. But through fortuitous like dice rolling, luck, whatever you want to call it, um, that it, it didn't happen. And you couldn't have written it better. Um, the second one was quite possibly um, our re-fight of Isanwana, where we had the best part of a 1,000 Zulus chasing down whatever it was, 800 British, 10,000 Zulus chasing down 800 British troops at Isanwana. We fought on a 10 to 1 scale. I've got visions of my mate Mark sitting behind the Sphinx-like mountain with a pith helmet on, with four <laughs> stands of infantry left, with about 150 stands of Zulus charging up at him. And the, the last stand was, of course, the King's Colours. So of we course. just had this vision. And we come <laughs> back to the big games. It's about the vision. And it's about getting that emotion coming through. And then the final one was, it wasn't any particularly special game. It was, uh, we did a siege game in the English Civil War, not something that people tend to do, big siege games. Um, I had a few games workshop castles, which I chopped up a bit and created some breaches and then put the original walls back in. And we had a game where basically for the first 25 minutes, the, the royalists were pounding the walls and putting breaches in. And then we did the classic forlorn hope where they charged the breaches. And I, it was really was a, like a four to one in favour of the royalists attacking the parliamentary defenders. And they just got in. And it was, again, oh. a nail biter. So you end up with the nail biters are always the best ones. Yeah. You know, I think we all play these big games and sometimes you end up with a scenario where halfway through the game, you know which way it's going to go. Mm. Do you yeah. carry on or do you just fight it out because you've got another hour on the clock? So. Oh, fantastic! Some great, some great stories and great, great games there. And and I always find that with the big games, I, there's very, very few um, club night games that I remember. Yeah, very, very few. But big games, even you know the process of the organisation, the progress, the the setting up, it, it's like a ritual um, that you that you go through. Um, and sometimes they don't play out particularly well. But you might normally you will have a good laugh with the friends over a extended period of time that you might not normally have chance to spend with friends um you know you might have a friend you might see them for an hour in the pub once a month um but uh, an afternoon or a evening gaming over 
regular periods, I find that's a fantastic way of um, getting to know somebody. So brilliant. Thanks very much for that. Um, what do you think um, for you are the, we've talked a little bit about this in the previous section, what are the pros and cons with big gaming then? Uh, pros and cons, I would say setup is what, and breakdown. <laughs> so, yeah. and as I mentioned to you earlier, you know, one of the things I, you know, when we do big games, we'll, we'll do them in a session. I don't like the carryover. I would fight one night and we'll finish it on day two. Um, so all of the games we play have to be finished in the session. So setup will always be done pre-game and breakdown will always be done pre-game. So, and it's typically me that will be doing that. So there is a time element and it's at least an hour either side because by yeah. the time you put all your nice toys away and put the train away and everything. <laughs> so setup and breakdown. Um, aside from that, of course, the... Do you not, do you not, sorry to butt in, Giles, but do you not find that quite... Uh, cathartic i i quite enjoy that process is it a chore for you i i i quite enjoy the you know putting figures in boxes and putting them back on the table um, might just, because might just i'm doing it i would say probably at least two weeks and three it mm. becomes a bit mundane <laughs> okay yeah um one of the one of the curses that i have is because and again i don't want to sound egotistical but because i have this big games room with its own kitchen facilities and its own bathroom and so on. And because I'm a very welcoming individual and my wife allows me to do all of this, I tend to end up where most weeks will end up with six, if not more players wanting to come along. So you end up in the scenario where it becomes expected. And because I love doing it, it doesn't, that the doing the game is not the chore. It's, it's the, it's the break up and set down. So, I get the where I do get a kick out of setting stuff up is where it's for a new game. Yeah. If it's for oh well, I haven't had a chance to sit down and write something up, or to work something out new, then I'll either pull something out of what we've already done in the past, or I'll just make something up. You know, mm -hmm. we've all done that, but it will still be a big game. It will still be thirty, forty units aside, so it still be seven, eight hundred figures aside minimum, because mm -hmm. that's yeah. what for want of a better word, my players expect, unless we go completely the other way. So, for example, I have a number of what I call smaller games, so things like I have a Predators game where basically players play colonial marines in a jungle and they get ambushed by Predators. That might only have 12 figures on it, but it'll have a six-foot jungle on the table. Um, we'll do Rescue Gordon, which is basically I'll set up my cartoon city and the special forces of the day, either Royal Marines or the Scots Guard, will go into the city to find to find Gordon. But of course, at the same time, you've got 10,000 Mardis running around the streets. So there are lots of little games. Um, we have an on-running adventures of using Fistful of Lead with um, certain uh, Captain Richard Sharp of the 95th Rifles, who seems to every time we play a game, there's always a bridge and he always dies. But that's a very small skirmish-based game. So that's Sean, that's Sean Bean for you. Yeah, exactly. So he there are does. lots of games that we'll use, and some of them will be big games, but also some of them might be small games with big ambitions. Does that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's so good. pros and cons. So break up and set down. Getting things wrong in terms of the organisation. So, for example, you might realise that actually I've got a pitch battle here. The forces should be two to one, but mm. actually there's not enough attackers on the attacking side. Yeah, you so you need to rebalance it because you know that within half the game it's all going to be over and the you know the attackers don't stand a chance of achieving their objectives. 
So the the scenario imbalance that that perhaps is one of the, the so you go to a lot of effort and then it doesn't yeah. work. If if you do if you do do that, I mean this is something I do. If it's going wrong, I'm quite happy to change it halfway through. Oh, we do. Um, yeah, yeah. We, to we get do. more of a game out of yeah. it. But you've got to be mindful. This is where when you have an umpire, it becomes immeasurably easier because the umpire can introduce elements to the game that the play, that can be done in such a way that it's not immediately obvious that it wasn't part and parcel of the yeah. scenario. Make the players um, so, think it's planned. Yeah. So I, I'm very happy umpiring games. And some of the best games I've been involved in are ones where I've umpired. Because, of course, you can then accordingly accommodate different points of time in the game. But you tell your players right up the front, right up front, that there will be changes as things happen. Yeah. So, you know, a unit could be riding past a set of woods and then you pull another unit out of the draw and say to uh, the defender, actually, your your gorillas can now ambush. And they didn't even know they were there. But, you know, that's part and parcel. Of the... So it's, yeah. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Obviously, I don't think it's a secret to say that big games have kind of fallen out of fashion um, in recent years. And, you know, we were talking earlier on that the new set of rules for the bigger games is... 15 plus years old and there seems to be new skirmish games with 10 15 figures coming out on a weekly or monthly basis um is it over is the big game over is it left with our kind of you know our mid 50s generation to take it to the end or could you see people bringing it back into fashion. I think things like Epic are starting to do it, uh, but I just wondered on uh, your sort of kind of take on the on the thing. Uh, yeah, I think I think you've, Epic, for example, is a is a great opportunity for big games to continue on a smaller table. I think perhaps I'm being a little bit too pessimistic here, but you know, I'm assuming that you're living in your own property there, Ken. Mm. Uh, I'm living in my own property. I am fortunate enough and blessed enough to have an outbuilding where I can put a big, big table. My kids are both in their 20s. will probably struggle to buy anywhere in the next 10, 15 years. Will, would, if my son was involved in the hobby, would he be able to have a shed at the end of the garden? He'd be lucky to have a garden. So I think, in a sense, economic conditions might drive the change that we have in our gaming, mm. yeah. uh, just in terms of scale or size. So something like Epic or even small scales like 6 mil and 2 mil perhaps could scratch that itch will we but although i have been thinking an epic battle on a 17 foot table might look fun um so without wishing to sound pessimistic i think that time will effectively erode the really big games out there you might see them still on at conventions it and certainly you might still see them in clubs where players can get together and have a big enough venue to run them um, but the cost involved, the time involved, both of which are clearly very precious commodities today, may well drive out big games, which is mm. sad. But the more we can continue to blow our trumpet, the more we can talk about it, the more we can broadcast it, the more we can show photos and videos of it, then the better. Yeah, exactly. We might have I, I, Yeah. I think plastic figures as well has made uh, a difference. You know, I, I've bought some recently for a project and then looked at how much it would have cost me if I bought all of the figures for the project in metal 
as opposed to the rank and file in plastic and the specialist units in metal. Um, and it does make a huge difference to oh, the massive. Um, to the um, you know. And I, you know, I'm I'm similar to you. I'm quite lucky, and uh, you know, I'm not scratching down the back of a sofa for some change for a pint of milk at the end of the week. Um, so I, I have a disposable income that I can spend on the hobby. But if I could buy more figures with with the plastic, then um, yeah, I'm going to do that. Aren't I? I I would anticipate that 95 percent of my collection is plastic. Mm. Um, and the only way I could afford to do big battles is with plastic. Um, and I'm not, you know, so my plastic forces, um, yes, I have to assemble them. I have to prime them. I have then have to paint them. So yes, there's an extra piece of legwork that has to go in, but ultimately at the end of the day, for every plastic horse is going to cost me again, I'm a cheapskate here because I will try and buy all the figures I need off eBay as seconds, yeah. cheap boxes or deals. So, yeah. you know, as an example, you know, the big box sets that Warlord Games come out with, they retail at £100 plus. You can find sellers on eBay selling them for 65 quid. So all of a sudden you're saving yourself 40% straight away. And because they're big boxes, to buy them as individual boxes will cost you even more. So, yeah, if I can get – I have a notional view of 50p a figure on foot. Yeah. And I really don't like to spend more than that unless it's for command stands or specials. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and those those big box sets, I mean a lot I I haven't because I'm not stupid and I don't paint Lance Necks. Um but that big Lance Neck starter box has got loads of people into Italian wars. Yeah. Uh, and then put them off straight away where they realise how hard they are to paint. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they should have done a starter box set of early Swiss w without the cut. <laughs> yeah. And then loads of people would have got into it. But there we go. There we go. Well, thanks very much for that. Um, lovely little big game chat there. So we'll move on to our features section after the break. Okay, it's uh, section three, and it's the features section. It used to be called a quiz, but we've chucked another bit, couple of bits in. Um, so uh, it's now the features section. So the first thing um, we're going to do is the Yorkshire Gamer Quiz. Um, so are you ready for this, mate? I'm going to try to be, yes. Excellent. That's what we like to hear. Um, so, um, quick disclaimer before we start, because I know this upsets some people. Um, these, it's a bit of a joke. It's a, it's a laugh. That's what we're doing it for. Um, so, uh, it's one, one, or it's usually one or another or a yes or a no answer. But if you want to have a chat about any of the questions, um, and stick some anecdotes in, you're more than welcome. Okay, uh, so first question. I think I know the answer. Uh, go big or go home? Go big. Go big. Contrast paints, are they great or are they a gimmick? Gimmick. Gimmick. Excellent. Um, coming to choose a paintbrush, do you go for Windsor & Newton or Yorkshire Made Pro Art? Is there another answer for that? You can give me another answer. You I will, get well, my it. answer is I use uh, a company called Major Brushes who produce cheap synthetic nylon brushes, and I buy them for next to nothing off eBay. Well, not, I have to say, I've not heard of them. Major Brushes. Major Brushes. Are they made from uh, they made from rat hair? or No, they're, they're, they're nylon brushes. Um, oh. And 
they are as cheap as chips and i literally use one for you know i burn through brushes so quickly when i'm painting the armies yeah. i don't tend to look after them particularly well um and so i just burn through them really quickly and they do the job oh interesting very interesting i'm a fast painter you see so i'm not yeah. worried about the the detail the detail well, that's, well, horses for courses as they say or or rat hair for courses yeah, right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> so um question four then uh 96 figures is that an army or a unit of pike unit of pike unit of pike excellent that's what i'd like to see um a six by four table is that a big game or a small game small game small game excellent people writing in already and complaining um six uh points based army or historical order of battle historical order of battle good man uh right comes to mixing your paints uh are you a wet palette guy or an old bit of mdf old bit of mdf oh brilliant wet palettes are going out of fashion now are they yeah they probably wouldn't work my cheap brushes anyway <laughs> no they wouldn't no they wouldn't what, what do you use to wash your brushes out have you got an old mug or a honey pot honey pot brilliant with water brilliant i stole my lad my lad's now 24 um but um sorry 23 coming up 24. um i stole his um he had a little valiant cup you remember the um animated series about uh, or film about the pigeon yes um so i i stole that off him when he was about five well, he didn't <laughs> he didn't give it to me uh and uh, i still use that to uh to wash my brushes out in so there we go um when it comes to undercoating are you black or white for your undercoat gray gray oh bit of a middleman advantages of gray what do you what do you um it means i can get away with lighter colors on top of the primer so whites yellows flesh without having to put more than one coat on very good very good wise words uh question nine potential uh regional bias alert here um you're offered a cup of cup of hot drink uh, are you going to go for yorkshire tea or dirty mucky coffee it's tea every time good lad good lad you're doing very well you're doing very well i'm a yorkshireman at heart you see because you know my uh, team <laughs> um war game units um if it's correct for the period do you like the figures tightly packed or socially distanced oh correct for the period um tightly packed for some games socially different or whatever socially apart for others yeah it depends on the period yeah if, if it's historically accurate yeah we're doing a if we're doing a pipe block yeah we want them close together is what i'm saying we don't want them miles apart all right well in which case close together excellent excellent nothing drives me we're all in this hobby we can all do whatever we want i appreciate that but it does drive me mad when you have pipe blocks the, the, the figures are like three figures apart oh no you see now my figures my pipe blocks you asked me about 96 strong or whatever my pipe blocks are 32 strong but 16 figures in a 10 centimeter square area ah yeah so they're two centimeters apart so they're not tightly packed mm. does that make That's, but two centimeters is not no no exactly 
you know, you, if you look at it and it looks like a pipe block, yes, then it, it's for me, it's right. If you look at it and it looks like a, a bunch of blokes who've gone for a walk with a stick, yep, then it doesn't oh, it's work. Not a bunch of blokes who gone walk for a stick, but as you see, as I <laughs> as my armies get bigger and yeah. as I put more and more figures on the table, I realize I have to make them occupy a smaller footprint. So, yeah. whereas I, all my dark age forces are all based on five centimeters by five centimeter square bases so four figures so they're relatively open order i think is the way you describe it all my napoleonics all my greeks i'm doing all my romans i've done are all on four by fours so they're getting smaller so i'm getting more men onto a smaller footprint of land plus the fact it becomes easier to store them but am i going to go and rebase all my vikings and saxons no never rebase one of my golden rules yeah. never rebase uh, question 11. Um, do you prefer a two-hour club game or a weekend monster game? Well, there's not, I could, well, a three-hour club game, you know, because three yeah. and a half hour, but a weekend game for one engagement. So it's a, monst a monster game is the best, but, yeah, yeah, we don't always have that time. No worries. Question 12. Um, always, always a good one, interesting one for people who live down south. Um, avocado, are they just posh, mushy peas? Well, having spent 20 years working in the fruit trade, um, they are what I would call posh nosh. <laughs> Somebody started doing peas on toast. It seems to be the new thing. Don't. Don't go uh, there. It's no. It was a, peas on toast. Peas yeah. on toast. Somebody sent me a message yesterday. I think it was the day before, um, saying that they're doing peas on toast on Lorraine. Uh, Lorraine. Uh, I'm guessing it's Lorraine Kelly. Kelly, yeah, it's like a dead day show. So I need to look that up. Uh, where <laughs> peas on toast is apparently the the latest thing. I've seen these are mushy peas spread on. Well, hopefully, I mean, I did. There was a re recipe for it in one of the the books that I talked about in the last episode, right? Um, and, and it was all like shaves of mozzarella and oh, sprinklings gosh. of chilies and all. And it's like toast. Butter, peas. Right. But no, anyway, it's it's an ongoing okay. thing in this uh, this uh, podcast. Uh, question 13, the universal dice, the uh, universal question even. Yeah. Um, round dice, are they allowed or banned on your table? Banned on my table. Oh, there we go. 52. I don't know. I don't know who buys them. Well, no. Ian Fraser does because he gave me his. But, uh, <laughs> um, round dice. I don't think I've seen a round dice for a long, long time. Although we did have a game the other day where I have six sets of dice, different colours, and so each player takes their set of dice, and one player all of a sudden said to me, Charles, why has this dice got sixes on every single side? Yeah. And we have been playing, using these dice for probably six, seven years, and this one orange dice had a six on every single side. Wow. And somehow it clearly snuck in. And so all those games we played where somebody been rolling a dice, whether it was for a hit or a save or for command, they've always Easy. been rolling a six. And no doubt, you know, this is a bucket of dice I've got, and I just literally pull them out. So one dice, a rogue dice, does creep in. So here we are, hint from Eric the Shed. Go check all your dice are legitimate. Yeah. Wow. Ooh, wow. That's snuck under the snuck under the line, hasn't it? Yeah. 
Bloody hell. Bloody hell. Well, at least round dice are banned. And dice with all sixes on. They're banned yeah. as well. Um, you're going down the chippy for fish and chips. Would you have haddock or cod? Cod. Cod? Oh, well, you're doing really well, are you? Doing really well. I'll um, be a perfect match then, Ken. <laughs> we, we're not far off, mate. We're not far off. If you if you increase the quality of your brushes, um, question 15 uh, do you love a good table and a set of rules like a casualty table or an armour penetration table or are you more dice based oh that's a good question I'm trying to think the last time I used a table it would have to be probably dice based but yeah. I haven't seen tables for ages not since the WRG modern set of rules that I used to play Oh, now we're going back now we're going back and they were quite straightforward. There's that the um, 65 to 85. Yes. I can't remember. Yeah. Classic set of rules. I found yeah. my set the other day, and I have even started to contemplate going out and buying a whole load of 10 mil modern kit. Yeah. I remember games where we used to have mil helicopter, uh, MIA hind helicopters screaming across the table and atgws and yeah. trying to roll a six followed by another six to see if we could get a tactical nuclear weapon on the board but uh yeah no, they were classic games used to play it with the old heroics and ross figures and in the same folder i found the heroics and ross um postal leaflet that used to come out with their with their sales with all their prices on 10 oh yes for, you know yeah. for a unit of tanks and what oh, ridiculous yeah i remember those, what we well, do we... those prices now yeah, we used to play Challenger. Do you remember Challenger, Bruce Reed Taylor? That rings a bell. I don't think I ever played it. I definitely saw it. They were complicated. Right. They added they added another level of tables on top of tables. <laughs> but um, I'm a I'm an engineer geek. I love all that sort of stuff. No, <laughs> uh, uh, it was absolutely brilliant. Um, so, uh, question 16, 28 mil is king, yes or no? Yes. Excellent. No hesitation. That's what I like to hear. Um, unpainted miniatures allowed on the table, yes or no? Never. No. Never. Excellent. We've not talked football yet, um, but this is uh, Bradford City, who I support, or Leeds United. Leeds United every single inch of the way. Oh, dear. <laughs> I suppose you'll be the, from that generation that remembers dirty Leeds. Well, my, my passion for Leeds United um, has nothing to do with my... Uh, area of birth it's all down to my grandfather my grandfather bought my brother and i a sabutio football set in 1970 1969 and it came with two teams one was liverpool and one was leeds yeah. and being the elder of the two boys i chose leeds because leeds were playing better than liverpool at the time so my brother was saddled with liverpool well of course he's had the longer laugh over the years because his team's gone on and won far more trophies than I have. So, uh, yeah. But that's how our football allegiance started. But we yeah. stuck but with that. Yeah. At that time, I mean, it's the Billy Bremner, Frankie Gray, yes. Eddie Gray, Norman Hunter, yeah. that era. Um, that was one hell of a team. I was a mad. Oh, and don't forget Jack Charlton was playing for them. And, yeah. uh, you know, and of course, um, if, if there's a film you haven't seen it, the Charlie uh, Martin Sheen movie. Is it Martin Sheen? Yeah, yeah the, it's the United. Sheen. Yeah. yeah, for anybody who that. hasn't seen that, that's a fantastic movie, and it really encapsulates that particular period. It is fantastic, fantastic. Um, it didn't kick everyone off the park. They would have been a decent team, but there we go. Well, I read somewhere that the reason why they were called the Dirty Leeds United was not because of the 
tackles that, that you know the likes of Norman Hunter would be in. But it's because um, the uh, Don Revy used to keep dossiers on all the players that they used to face. Yeah. And at the time, the FA felt that that was doing the dirty. And isn't it yeah. interesting how life comes full circle? Because, of course, Bielsa was labelled with the same criticism yeah. when yeah. he sent his scouts out to go and look at the teams that they were facing in the championship. And, of course, they weren't labelled dirty, but they were labelled as cheats. And yet I suspect every single club in the land, if it had the money or the resources, I, a.k.a. most of the Premier League, have got scouts doing that already. Or they're watching t- Opta, or whatever that performance is, yeah. is yeah. another classic example of player dossiers. Anyway, that's what I read. I don't know whether it's factually true, but that's why they were labelled the dirty Leeds United. But I'm probably not. Uh, well, we love a bit of football gossip on this show. Uh, we, we talk cricket, we talk anything on here. <laughs> uh, get, get around to fish and chips, get around to war gaming eventually. Yeah. Uh, question 19, it's Yorkshire or the other place over the hill? Well, it has to be Yorkshire. Oh, I only ever play lad. Yorkshire when we're doing Wars of the Roses as well. So, uh... Oh, good lad, good lad. <laughs> and then the, the final question... Uh, GW Games Workshop, are they the work of the devil? Yes or no? No. 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 You, do you uh, partake in any of their games? or No, but I am of an age where I remember Games Workshop when they had their first branch open up in Hammersmith, in Dalling Road. Um, I worked the first two Games Day shows in London when I was 16 and 17. Um, and... Uh, I think Games Workshop obviously clearly has evolved since it was just a run-of-a-mill small shop and then embraced role-playing games and Dungeons and & Dragons has gone on to be the behemoth that it is today. Um, I think any business that has an opportunity of creating an opening for our hobby has to be applauded. I don't necessarily agree with everything that they do, but it is an opening for the next generation for of Wargamers. An, accept, an acceptable one as well to that age group. The, um, I mean, the big thing at the moment is the old world coming back, um, which is just basically Italian wars with dragons and orcs. Um, and the prices of the figures is eye-watering, I have to yeah. say. Um, but then I think that that is, is marketed, at, again, at probably our age and just slightly below, who did the old world the first time round in the, I don't know, would it have been 90s when it was out the first time? Yeah. Um, so I can see I can see where they're going, and they're a public limited company. Yeah. Um, turning I've, over I've, a billion, I've got one share. I've got one share. Turning over a billion pounds a year, so that, you know they're not small fish at the end of the day, and they're global, and they're one of Britain's greatest exports. Ultimately, you could argue. So all, all credit to them. So get out there and buy the old world, so my share increases right. in value. That's my message. Seventy-seven and a half percent. Oh, very good. Pass. Very good. Always. It's a first-class <laughs> first degree, that. Excellent. Excellent. Very good. Thank you very much for doing that. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so the next feature that we have is the War Games Room 101, and this is kind of our free space. This is our time for people to um, say something that they don't like in the hobby, and we, we guess and we get that it's all-encompassing and everyone's free to do whatever they like. But sometimes something gets your goat up, and like I mentioned in my in the last episode about instructions um, on in Perry Miniatures plastic box sets, where else is the head going to go? Yeah. Um, so 
there are things out there that just niggle us that we want to get off our chests. So, have you come up with a new one for us, Giles? That's not been in War Games Room 101 before? I think so. Um, mm. And I think that we can all probably be guilty of it. Oh, right. I like it. And I touched upon this earlier on, and that mm. is that when I play games and when I host games here in the shed, we have a defined time to play the games in. Typically, it's three and a half hours. My biggest pet hate, and this goes back, and I'm not knocking the guys who've been hosts that I've attended to games in the past. Mm. Well, I am because it's a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> is that you turn up to a game, you watch somebody who perhaps has brought their own figures along. And again, I always welcome any of my players to bring their own figures along. But the provision is they turn up 15 minutes earlier to get them onto the table. Yeah. But my pet peeve is you go along, you then watch somebody individually unwrap every single one of their figures with tissue paper from their warring up with their Warhammer foam cover box to put their figures on the table. Yeah. Once they've done that, they will then spend the next half an hour ranking them up in nice, neat lines. And before you know it, an hour has passed of your precious yeah. gaming time. Much, much better to have a scenario where the game is set up in advance and both sides have agreed that they're going to play to a conclusion. Yeah. Now, if that conclusion means that you run out of time, you then both agree how might the battle have fought out with a victor or a, or a draw or whatever accomplished. But more often than not, you attempt to complete the game within the time frame as well. My biggest pet hate is playing a game and being frustrated by the fact that we haven't finished it. More yeah. often than not, if you take a board game, Monopoly is a classic example. I mm. hate Monopoly because there's never a bloody end to it. <laughs> um, the board games I like to play is when there's a definitive end. Somebody's either achieved their points condition or there's no more left of Mars to terraform or there's no more bloody money in the bank or there's no more territories to cap. There's a definitive end. And that's how mm. I want my, more, my war games to be fought, either to a point where both side, one side has conceded or both players have agreed that that is the conclusion yeah. of Better still that you have, as I described earlier, the Towton adventure where the last throw of the dice leads to that definitive conclusion. Yeah. Yeah, Very rare, but it does happen. Um, yeah. So, yeah, my pet peeve is, is, that is not finishing when you want to finish or not having an end. It's nothing worse than a game starting and then finishing. I did go to one place once, which will remain nameless, and literally <laughs> there were two chaps setting their armies up. By the time they finished, they had an hour of play. The first one took 45 minutes to make his first move, and that's wow. because all of his figures were individually on stands, and he had to push oh. them all along. And, and then 15 minutes later, the other ones had his move, and then they got to clear the room. So they all then went to the pub for an hour. I'm thinking, no, absolute waste of time. Why bother doing it? Why, why bother playing the games? Just play with the figures. Just paint the figures. Yeah. Anyway, that's my pet hate. Do you think? Do you think it's a deliberate tactic, or do they not realise? I think for them, it's as, it was much a social experience to go to the to the game. I know you're you're, you're smiling there. It, 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 I don't think it was a deliberate tactic. Um, yeah. I just think that that's the way they played. Yeah. Um, and yet it would drive me mad, um, which is why yeah. I never went back again. No. And and it, it, it is interesting, going back to the 
into the first section where we were talking about the Venn diagram of wargaming. There are people, and I'd include myself in it because the the game for me is not the be all and end all. Um, I, I I can quite happily, you know, set up an army in in the room here for a photograph session for Facebook or whatever, and not actually game with it. And I feel quite good about it. So, um, you know, maybe that is their thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see why. Uh, you see, for example, when I'm putting together posts for my blog, they are all what I want to call in-action shots, I yeah. on the table at the time. Mm. And I will do the minimum of photo, photo editing. Normally it's crop and whatever, yeah, just to take out hands and dice yeah. and so on. But yeah. I do not set up photo shoots um, because I don't have the time to do it. Um, and if I'm going to put an army out on the table, it may as well be because it's going to be played with. So um, yeah, no, I no, I I get it, and and um, the 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 big thing through personally for me through doing this podcast is is kind of getting to understand all those different little nuances within the hobby um, of where that Venn diagram sits, and people like me where the war game in part of it is slightly out, whereas the history, the collecting, and the painting is bang in the middle, and then people like yourself where everything is pretty much same and then other people who are not that bothered about collecting or painting but just love to game yeah um so it's it's a nice way of, a nice way of looking at it for, for, for sure but that's that's quite a good one is the gaming like for me is very much the end result and that mm. and what for want a better word everything that everything i do has to lead up to the game mm. there has yeah. to be a purpose for me to spend hours painting figures or building terrain or reading up research, it's about the game ultimately at the end of the day. That for me is the most important part. So if, if, if I had a chance to redraw my Venn diagram, the gaming side would be more important because mm -hmm. that for me is the sociable yeah. side. Yeah. Whereas I've, um, a couple of three years ago, I can't remember how long ago it was now, I put together two um, Roman uh, Republican legions with the Maniples, the Triarii, et cetera. Yeah. Um, at once 20 so there's a lot of figures <laughs> yeah. uh, never used them never used them never used them yeah i've got 600 afghans all painted and never been used in my colonial wars we've all got an army out there that's never been used never been used never been used well, i keep saying that they're, they're not going to get army. used until perry's bring out or war games atlantic bring out a, a mounted persian uh not persian arab um afghan army i need mounted yeah. afghans yeah so uh yeah mm. We'll get there in the end. We'll, we'll get, get there, there in the end. So um, the vault is closing behind us. Okay. Um, so the War Games one, Room 101 has a new entrance. Um, so that just leads us on to the Desert Island War Game, and uh, very similar to the BBC Two show. Um, you imagine that you've been stowed away on a desert island, uh, and other than the works of Shakespeare and a Bible, you can take uh, three things. And um, the first thing is a war game. It can be any size, any number of players, any number of figures or whatever, but a war game that you would kind of take as your the war game that you're going to have. Okay. Um, for the reasons I've already mentioned, the uh, because of its, it's an icon in my life, would have to be my game of Rook's Drift. Yeah, yeah, no, some good reasons behind that. I like that one. Um, and then second um, is is a book. What's the one book that's kind of affected your wargaming the most? Oh, now I've got 
right i'm gonna i'm gonna this is a bit left field center because it's something that i've only really started to delve into but it's given mm. me the passion to want to achieve something that i haven't that is a is a goal um i have an ambition starting this year to fight every single battle of the english civil war oh nice so starting now we've done some of them like naseby and cheriton and what have you um and i have acquired a considerable expense a book called the english civil war by nick lipscomb um, and it is a fantastic tome not only does it give a complete history of the british civil wars because it covers scotland as well but it also covers every single battle and more importantly pretty much for every single major battle as far as i can tell it's got all the orders of battle in it wow. now it's not designed as a war gamers tome mm. but it is absolutely fabulous as a resource to go to for a mm. war game is that a relatively new book i have to say I can't, i'm not aware of it hold on one second i can tell you when that was published well it's perfect for an audio podcast this. Right. so i don't know if you can see the camera there oh look at the size of that right so that was nick that Lipscomb, yeah the english civil war it is osprey oh look at the size of that um and it comes with maps histories as i said all the battle this was public it comes with all the the, the battle maps and everything else he nick, now nick lipscomb also did one for the peninsula war as well wow. which is equally large yeah. um and this was published in first published in 2020 so relatively new yep oh excellent big old book and any english civil war fan out there it's retail it was 60 50 pound all oh, right okay you could probably but it, it is you know that's given me the passion so i bought that just before christmas last year and gave it to myself as a christmas present and uh yeah and that that is that is a i mean probably listeners probably just heard that dropping on the table behind you it's a big old tome yeah if you if you, if you drop that on your cat it's not getting up again it's a big heavy weight you need steel toe caps if you're going to drop that on your foot yeah yes. it, it's definitely health and safety required isn't there with that that bad boy what's well, I, I might look out for that one myself i'm a big english civil war fan uh, myself i've got a big royalist army um and um friend of mine who passed away recently um left me all this stuff and I've, I've got his parliamentarian army as well um so one of my projects for this year is going to be to renovate rebase um finish units and stuff for that so uh, something i'll be probably looking at in think. that book i can yeah. I, 10 out of 10 as a rating for a wargamer brilliant i should get my hands on a copy of that um so nick if you're listening well done Thank you very much for the, that book. Um, and then finally, in the in this little section, um, a war games unit. What would, would be the one war games unit outside of your war game um, that you would take? Is there a particular unit that has? Yes. You know, uh, um, or yeah, yeah. Um, no, absolutely. Um, and this is you're probably not even going to think I would mention this. Because we would never have heard of them. Um, yeah. This would be my very British Civil War Postal Brigade. Yes. Yep. Now, are you familiar with the very British Civil War, Ken? I am, would you believe? But I'm only familiar in the fact that there's a big crossover between that and the Spanish Civil War. And I've used a lot of 
um, is it futsal that do the miniatures? I can't yes. remember. Well, the futsal, um, the, the, any, any miniatures can do it. It's, a, it's miniature agnostic. Yeah. Um, but there are, the, the, is it futsal that do VBCW specific figures? I think, I think they do some as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because um, I've got some of those that I've used for my international brigades for Spanish Civil War. So I'm aware of it and I'm aware, roughly aware of the background of what's going on with it as well. So one of the things that we like we, we we like playing games. We like fun games as well in the shed. And sometimes, because we're not because I'm not particularly leaning into World War Two, there's always a need sometimes that you want to have tanks on the table. Oh, of course. Everybody has to have tanks at some point in time. And because the very British Civil War is set in that interwar period of the 1920s through to the late 30s, it gives you that opportunity to put all those weird and wonderful things contracted <laughs> see down in Bovington and everywhere else on yeah. the table um, and set in the chaos of this anarchic civil war in England uh, with the abdication and everything else. We embraced the very British Civil War a few years back. Um, it gave me the opportunity to build everything from railway lines to gas warehouses through to um, airports through to fences on English countrysides and so on and utilised a lot of the 28 mil terrain I have for lots of other things but also gave me an opportunity to put down some proper tarmac roads and so on and using things like little die cast Lado vehicles and so on yeah. and just having fun with 28 mil figures um, and having lots of silly games you know so like you know the equivalent of Kelly's Heroes game but set in in home county England um, so and out of that, a lot of the players who I play with, we've all developed our own little units who periodically appear on the table and either join the fascist forces or join the Anglican League. And I have one such unit called the Postie Brigade. Uh, the yeah. Postie Brigade um, basically are World War One soldiers but painted up in blue, blue uniforms with the classic peak caps, the Enfield rifles, but they've got all the support weapons like mortars, which are actually delivering parcels um, <laughs> and machine guns and so on. But I also have um, a rather large collection of 1930s Lado post vehicles yeah. kept in their livery of red, all varnished down, of course, so they're no longer glossy on the table. But they have the ultimate tank called Big Red. Now, Big Red is a tank <laughs> that was never, ever seen in real life. Um, it was something I picked up at some show somewhere or other, but it's this monstrosity with three turrets on it. And Big Red clanks around the battlefield with a couple of machine guns and a big gun at the front. And in every single game, because it's so large and so slow, it gets blown up. But everybody <laughs> likes to see Big Red on the table. Of um, course. And half the bridges that I've built, it can't go across. So yeah. we play a very simple rule. If the vehicle don't fit the bridge, the vehicle's not going over the bridge. So, um, yeah, so my unit that I would take with me, because it's given me a great deal of fun, uh, would be the Postal Brigade from Very British Civil War. Brilliant. I, I have seen I've seen quite a lot of that. And um, like you say, people have their own factions, and I've seen a lot of um, stuff done around here with, you know, like Batley Working Men's Club and and all the sorts of, you know, miners' unions yep. and all that sort of thing. So it is it is uh, a good bit of a, a fun kind of diversion. It's a fun thing, like. and we use we use bolt action rules to play mm. because they again they're nice and simple. Um, they deliver. We change the order mechanic rather than drawing dice out of the cup, but ultimately, at the end of the day, they give a simplistic set of rules that are fast play but great fun on the table. Did it have its own set of rules? I've certainly seen... Yes, it did. Um, it has its own set of rules um, published by... Oh, God, I can't remember who did them. But it's called Went the Day Well. 
That was it. Um, was it was card activation where you would put little playing cards down next to each unit, and as and when the card came out, that unit would activate. Um, but suffice to say that the rules are very simple. You know, you roll to acquire the target, you roll to hit, you roll to save, yeah. and the morale. Oh, nice one. Nice one. Well, thanks very much for that. Okay. Um, lovely features section. We shall move on to our big topic. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Uh, we're in the final part of the show where we chat with our guest about the big topic. And, and today um, we're talking with Giles or Eric, which uh, whichever it is, whichever persona we've got, um, uh, about Shed Wars. And um, it kind of started back in uh, was 2012, the blog started. Yep, 2012. Yep. 2012 so first of all then eric the shed where did that come where did the were you, you hiding from the fbi or no 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 uh, actually the, <laughs> the 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 handle if that's the right term Ooh, came the handle, after yeah. the blog so i would so in 2012 in december it was i remember it very very clearly it was absolutely tipping it down with rain and i think gaming night had been cancelled because it was far too cold outside and it was at a time when the Shemp wasn't heated. Yeah. And I'd only just, I think, two years earlier or a year earlier, moved into my shed, having played at the mm. previous group home in Farnborough. And I was bored and I needed to do something. And I, like all these things, you sit there on the internet and you pour through various things. And there was all of a sudden, I just started picking up, there were more and more people writing about their games experiences in the around 2010, 2011 on, in blogs. Now, I am the probably the least technical literate person who walks this planet. And just to get onto this podcast, Ken, I had to get my son in yesterday <laughs> for the cost of a Sunday lunch to plug me all in. Um, yeah. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I said, what is all this blogging stuff? And so I went on to Blogger and yep. I created a blog. And the first one was called The Shed in Surbiton. And I thought about that and I said, that doesn't sound very good. And I'd, so I'd written a few words and I thought, oh, published it and i no, that's going so it disappeared and then i swipe thought hang on a minute and just out of the ether came the word shed wars because to me it summed up everything that i wanted to try and achieve it was wars in a shed it, and it was it was it could be a story and clearly there's a play on the words shed wars with a big movie franchise um, and I come on to that in, this, uh, in a second because there's an interesting story around that as well about the name Shed Wars and what's happened since. Um, anyway, to cut a long story short, when I had the blog, I started writing on it. And then I thought, how do I tell all those wonderful people in the world I've got a blog? Because, you know, I want to tell people, I want to share this, you know. And of course, my kids who are in there, they wouldn't even be in their teens, say, but dad, you've got to have things like, I don't even know Twitter, turn, or Instagram, or Facebook, mm -hmm. is it? Yeah. Um, you've got to tell people about it. I said, yeah, but I'm not going to go under the name of Giles Shapley because I have a career. I have a job. I'm a, quite a senior member of a business. You know, I have a team of people and who I really didn't want to go and compromise my position in my workplace with everybody thinking, oh, my boss paints toy soldiers. You know, <laughs> now, yeah. I, 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 that's not me being degrading what we're doing, but, you know, there's there are two sides to most people's lives. And what I do in my private life I didn't want to move across into my work. I, th I think as well, it's it's a lot more accepted today. Yes. Um, you know, um, I, I, I've been similar to you um, 
in the you know i don't advertise what i do at work um but a lot of people now just you know games workshop whatever um you know henry cavill the, the guy who plays superman is yep. a war gamer it's a lot more socially acceptable uh today but i do see where you're coming from with it and i think a lot of people are listening well as well so with with the blog being launched i needed a handle and there's all sorts of things you could put and you know what i just thought <laughs> i wanted the name shed in there because then it would link with eric the shed uh, sorry yeah. with with the, the blog yeah. and again i just thought okay think i just thought of characters in history and then what rhymes with shed and the only thing i could think of was red and i thought red beard shed beard was an option and i thought no i'm gonna go eric eric the shed because it eric the shed yeah and that's where eric the shed started and that's how mm. shed Wars came about in terms of its name mm. so it was a boring wet night um and i posted up some pictures of some terrain i'd done i think and that was it and that and then it became literally something that took off from there and as i look back it it's a diary mm. of my hobby it's a diary of the games I've played, the figures I've painted, the terrain I've built, and the friendships I've made. And it is, it's my life history from 2012 in the hobby sphere that I operate in. And it gives me, and you know, I think seven, 800 posts are on there now. I mm. can go back and I can open up a post and I think, good God, I remember that. And some of them are really quite long. Some of them, you know, we've gone for four or five pages or what have you in terms of about orders of battle. Re so it's also a log of everything I've done. So if I wanted to refight a particular battle, I don't have to go and look for it on a file file somewhere. It's all there on my blog, along with the history of how the game out came out and what have you. So yeah. so it's it's a, it's, it's a memory. It's, a, it's and it will last. It will outlast me, assuming unless the server goes down somewhere. But yeah, you know, so it's my legacy. So that's how Shed Wars came about. Was was there any any link to Eric the Viking, the um, Monty Python esque film? No, I didn't know whether that would have a link. Eric, no, Shed it was the literally because I wanted to find something that rhymed with shed, and Eric <laughs> right. the shed was the yeah. only character apart from Shed Beer that I could come up with. Now, as it transpired a few years later, if, if now if you Google Shed Wars, Shed Wars, my blog comes out as the number one search title. Yeah. And I've been written to three times in in over the last twelve years by three American TV companies. One wanted to buy the blog, not as yeah. in the games blog, but they just wanted to for me to cease and desist. But they weren't. Even I think their their sum total was four hundred ninety nine dollars. They wanted to offer me just to okay. close it down. I said, go away. It's not worth it. Um, mm. Another one was there's a there's an American TV program called Shed Wars, which is all about guys in the American West going out and shooting deer. And the whole idea is that they are only allowed to shoot them, I believe, when the deer have shed their antlers. And right, okay. like one of these um, fishing at sea programs where yeah. the greatest catch. And these guys are going out to see how many deer they can shoot or what have you. Um, and then the final one was um, about two years ago, I got contacted because, again, it was another American company that set up on YouTube um, wanting to set up a catch-all YouTube channel called Shed Wars, which was all about gardening. Right. And about competitive gardening. And again, they wrote to me and said, could you possibly say no? And I said, no, you know, this is my blog. This is my hobby. And I'm, I'm not... Anyway, Shed Wars, the gardening thing has gone has gone bust because I wanted to know how much it would cost me to buy ShedWars.com when I launched my business. 
and it was out of my pocket range, so I couldn't buy it. But I wish now, my wife said to me years ago, make sure you protect the domain names. But as I said, I'm completely technically illiterate, and I had no idea what yeah. she was talking about, and I didn't. <laughs> so, so that's where Shebbles came from. Oh, brilliant. So it could it could have been a gardening program, shooting deer, deer. Yeah. Or, or, deer, or what was the other one? They, um, deer oh, hunting, gardening, or my war game. And then, of course, yeah. every so often there's um, uh, sorry, various um, shed companies have actually contacted me. I've, been, I've, I've written um, blog posts for shed companies um, yeah. about what to do in your shed. I should say legally. Um, yeah. and uh, But they have all sorts of posts such as shed wars where people have turned their sheds into things that look like the Millennium Falcon or what have you. Oh, so you sometimes get that sort of stuff coming up as well. So, yeah. And you've, you've kept it going, haven't you? It's, um, it, I was, I was looking through recently and you, you, you kind of had a, like a, a review post, um, about how things are going now. Yeah. Um, and is, is it like a, a you know, a regular, a thing for you, like a diary where you, putting stuff in still every week or month or whatever uh, it used to be when i would say uh certainly up until about two three years two years ago i was posting on a, what i would call a weekly basis mm. um my life has somewhat changed in the last 18 months um, yeah. as we'll explain shortly and so it's meant that the the time i get a to post but also to take the pictures and as you we were talking about you know podcaster and so on off screen earlier um there's quite a lot of time that goes into putting these things together so for example this morning i posted up about our retake on the battle of talavera you know that's an hour to sit down mm. edit the photos copy them up onto the blog write the text and what have you just check it not particularly brilliantly but and then hit the thing so it there's you know an hour sometimes does doesn't exist in my diary at the moment mm. so yeah. i try to do it as and when i can what I have done this morning, because I knew that I was going to spend the afternoon with you, Ken, is I used that this morning to not only um, prep for this, but I've also written the next three posts up. So in other words, I've got a bank of posts written. So probably like, yeah. like yourself, get your podcasts up and running, and then you can launch them out as and when. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so, um, and they will be typically the ones I wrote up this morning are about the update on where I am with my Greek army and what the plans are for the next you know, coming weeks and months. Yeah, and I think you were saying on there that you're still getting lots of interaction, lots of visits, etc. Because blogs in general and internet forums as well. Um, we we mentioned Lead Adventure earlier on. The the um, the activity on there seems to have dipped down, and people tend to be doing the shorter format, Facebook, Twitter, etc. Um, so. How how is that going with you? Are you still getting lots of interaction? Um, I've just gone past. Oh, I've, I've hit over 2 million hits since the blog was launched. Hmm. I'm averaging somewhere in the region of between twelve to 14,000 hits a month. Um, interestingly, when you look at, back at the stats, it's not just the most recent posts are normally getting somewhere between 700 to 1,000 hits on each post. But some of the old ones, some of the big topics, so for example, Frostgrave, I did a whole subject on Frostgrave wizard tables, etc., I've got something like about 24,000 hits on that because I'm pretty sure people are coming back and um, using that information or learning about that particular thing or what have you. So some of these posts can get quite big. 
it's it's still growing. Um, followers aren't as many as they used to be, uh, but mm. I don't I don't tend to follow the numbers. It's more about, as I said, the primary reason for me doing the blog today is acting as a memory of what I've done in the past and as a resource for myself, but also as a means to showcase what we've been doing to help me for the next for the venture that's coming up. Yeah, and do you um, do you do things like painting um do you record how you've painted stuff i know that's how i have used my blog in the past so that five years down the line when i come to paint another unit of spanish foreign legion or something for the spanish civil war i go oh, what green did i use and i can go back to it that way and use it as a resource no because i think there are so many paint i, I personally don't do that um mm. because there are so many painting tutorials out there the last thing they need is a bad painter to tell them how to paint i can tell them how to, i can tell them how to speed paint which is basically yeah. use a big brush and don't worry too much about it um but at the same time there are certain things there are certain paints that i will always use for everything so my flesh colors will always be the same whatever the the, the, the figure is unless mm. of course they're zulus um but you know by and large it's the same so i don't need to keep a record of what's what I don't tend to be too hung up about having to have the right blue for my French hussars or for my British line. A white is a white, a black is a black, and a brown is a brown. So, you know, obviously there are lots of different shades in between. So um, I don't tend to use it as a painting log. What I will do is use it as a showcase to show to people that I started in October and by December I have achieved, I don't know, painted 300 hoplite. Or that. And for me, that's not... Some people might say it's showing off, but I'm doing it as much to say to everybody else, well, you can do it mm. and have a job and have a full-time life. you just got to put your mind to it. And it's about having that factory approach. And um, I think it's important for us, for us both as bloggers, and I have to say I've let mine slide a little bit, to kind of big up the uh, amount of information and resources that are out there on blogs and how they still have a part to play today you know i could i could put a face on post uh, a post on facebook but you can't search facebook you can't search or, it no, absolutely um and if you want to you know if i want to do the the battle of our souf or whatever i could go to your blog and i can have a look at how you did it and yeah if you've got orders of battle on there it might not be fit my set of rules, but it gives me an idea. And I think um, I think they're a very, very important um, resource tool for people. To I think use. they are. And it's really interesting saying that because I can think of two battles that where other people's blogs help to shape my blog mm. or help to shape my take on a particular battle. So you, we mentioned Hattin earlier. Hattin, one of the things that I found was there was an Italian blog out there and they had fought in using i think hail caesar he had his orders of battle it wasn't a massive game but he had a structure to the game that worked on a, his four foot by eight foot table and i took his blog took his orders of battle and multiplied it up in the same ratios to what i had available i acknowledged him in his blog so i feel that you know because there's no protection for what as long as i always feel you know us war gamers should be sharing what we've learned with each other yeah um, and it delivered a fantastic game. Likewise, um, three years ago, we did the Battle of Five Armies, you know, from The Hobbit. Um, and a friend of mine found a website, stroke blog site, that had a player's take on that. So it was great. And uh, we took 
you know, again, so blogs are a fabulous resource um, for information. And I really agree with you. Facebook, it's nice to see what people are saying and you get the thumbs up and the smiley faces and the little half heart lark hearts. Yeah. But ultimately, at the end of the day, there's no means of searching. Um, you did, you, you kind of preempted my next question, which was going to be, um, are there, were there any blogs back in the day or now that kind of you inspired or um, you would go to just purely for the quality of, of, of what was on there? Well, with the exception of yours, uh, Ken. Um, obviously, obviously. Yeah. Well there's, well there's one website that, one blog site that I would rec. if people haven't been on it, they should mm. go to it. And that's a guy, a guy called Jay White, who operates out of California, called Jay's Wargaming Madness. Now, I think madness is too soft a term for it because the guy is absolutely... I'm blown away by some of the stuff that he achieves and some of the stuff that he's done. Um, his gaming room is basically his triple garage converted into man cave stroke bar stroke, whatever with a selection of whiskey you could die for um, but his photography, but also the sheer scale of what he wants to achieve is amazing. But he's also one of these characters um, and we've exchanged messages over time because he pretty much launched at the same time his blog that I launched mm. mine. Yeah. Um, and if you're looking for a transcontinental or a continental <laughs> um, uh, message, he's listening. I'm sure that he'd be happy to, to talk to you, Ken, because yeah. he, he, his photography is amazing, but he does everything from the American Civil War to Napoleonics. He's rewritten bolt action for his own purposes to accommodate the Iraqi war of um, Desert mm. Storm. Um, he's doing he's done Lord of the R um, Rings and has built a three-dimensional Helm's Deep and oh, Minas wow. Tirith. Um, yeah. It is just spectacular what him and somebody are doing. He's very much on the circuit in terms of the Gen Con circuits and what have you played games and historicons and so on. But, yeah, that is true inspiration in terms of what mm. he can achieve. There's a few other, but, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to think of that's the one that immediately springs to mind. There's a list of other blogs that I would follow but not follow if you know what i mean i'm following out of mm. sometimes something pops up or you're looking for something or but um no i wouldn't say with the exception of my friend alistair's a wargaming gallimore fray um you know that's pretty much you know and there aren't any what i would say big hitters out there that i, I go to all the time yeah i mean uh, certainly uh he's been on the show giles allison um his awi blog um really got me into the period and and he would put up a he would paint a unit and then he would put up a picture of it fantastic painter really nice photography and he'd do a history of the unit a little bit of detail about the uniform um and then you know a week or two weeks later he put the next unit up uh, and that was a big driver for me and a great source of uh, information um that's the american war of independence yeah awi yeah yeah, because that's the next project after the Greeks. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I'll send you. I'll send you a link to his. Yeah, please uh, do. Charles Allison blogspot. It's um, really, really good. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's definitely a great source of information for people out there, and uh, I encourage people if you've kind of gone off blogs, if you're looking for stuff, that's a place to go, and encourage people to carry on posting. Um, definitely. Can I add something so, to that, Ken? Yeah, of course. You can. I know that a lot of people don't like posting stuff, messages of affirmation or likes, or and there is no means to put a thumbs up on a blog. Mm. But as a 
blog writer, it means an awful lot when you get a single comment that even says great stuff or good work. It means mm. it means that you know that you're not just operating in a vacuum because ultimately blogs like everything else get hit by Russian bots. We don't know for certain whether the people who are viewing our pages actually even exist. Um, and so, yeah, just a plea from, from me and for every other blogger out there, if you like something, just put a word in there if you if you can, because sometimes people don't want to give away their true name or what have you, as we were discussing earlier. And likewise, on some of the other forums, you know, like the Lead Adventure Forum or the uh, or the TMP, which I hardly ever visit these days anyway, but certainly the Lead Adventure Forum, you get sometimes some of the posts I put up on some of the games I, I put out and say the stuff's on the blog, you get up to a thousand hits on the Lead Adventure mm. Forum and you might have two comments. Yeah. Now, if you don't like it, it's fine. But if you think it's any good, you know, for the purpose of, again, we're not trying to drive money or traffic, but even the, the, the forums themselves want more traffic so they can then command greater mm. revenues. And we, talk, we talked a little bit about this with Rich and Nick on the episode before Christmas about how little um, feedback you get from podcasting compared to, you know, like we were saying off air, um, three three and a half thousand listens for a show five or six comments yeah um and you know i don't you know i don't particularly want people it's a lot of rubbish but then if you if we're on episode 52 as we are now and you're listening you're kind of invested already i'm as guilty as the next person i'll look at something yeah. and, and because i'm not logged in i won't comment but I also mm. log, look at stuff when I am logged in and I should be making more, you know, because I, I do think that, you know, the other thing I've noticed on Facebook recently, there are quite a few people out there who are clearly struggling and their hobby is a means of their escape mm. in yeah. the world at the moment, you know, whether it be the cost of living or whether it be illness or what have you. Mm. And actually sometimes just a, a positive message saying that looks great can make somebody's day. And it doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be you, but it could. The guy, you know, sitting on his own in a cold house and he's just painted his first 28 mil figure or his hundredth, you know, might actually need that positive affirmation. So, no, no, that's a good, that's a good message. And um, I'm in the middle of the Analog Hobbies Winter Paint Challenge at the moment, which is an annual event. And one of the great things about that is that um, you get, a lot of comment you know a lot of people there's about 80 people involved and when people put posts up everyone i try and comment on every single post it's quite difficult to do because there's a lot of them yeah. um but it just to just to give that little nudge and that oh great stuff mate or whatever um can as you say push somebody um you know into a positive mindset which which is a fantastic place for them to be and we and we see more of that all the time. You know, I certainly see it on Facebook, and I'm sure you know you're seeing some of the same feeds that I am on Facebook. Mm. We, you know, some people are struggling out there. So yeah, yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. So um, we'll move on then to the star of the show. Um, not not that I'm saying you're not Giles, but obviously the shed. <laughs> Well, I'm just saying, I can't second fiddle to you, Ken. You're the star. It's your show. Second, second fiddle to the shed. Uh, so, so talk to me then about your old shed first. Let's let's not forget veterans that have fallen. Well, no, absolutely. Um, and actually, there's a sad tale to tell there as well in a second. But actually, the first the shed that you're referring to, the original shed shown in the Shed Wars blog, was actually the second shed because oh, the very first shed. 
existed in my parents' garden. Um, and when my brother and I got to a certain age where, should we say, the music was being played too loud, I, we must have been about 11 or 12 at the time, my parents decided that we better have our own den in the garden. And rather fortuitously at the time, my old primary school was being knocked down just down the road. So my father went down to see the, the contractors who were knocking this place down, and he bought half a classroom. And a couple of days later, they managed to sling the thing into the back of a van, turned up and was deposited in our back garden. And before we know it, there was a probably 16 foot by 12 foot building sitting nice. in the back garden. And uh, I, I can tell you now, health and safety would never have allowed us to even go in it because I suspect it was asbestos riddled and God knows what else. Yeah. Um, the tiles, certainly, if I remember, when my brother and I were burning the roof tiles when it fell down, we couldn't get the bloody things to burn. So I'm sure that they were asbestos. <laughs> So um, anyway, so to cut a long story short, that was the very first shed, but it had a games room in it. It's where we used to play out D&D. I had a big table that folded out from the wall um, when I used to do all my old world, um, my modern war gaming I, when I was living at home. And that was the first game shed. But the shed proper, the one in Surbiton, after our extension, I got to move into that one. That was 14 foot by 10. So I had a six by 10. Uh, 12 table just wide enough for us to walk around the edges oh yes um, the table was fixed to the ground built mm. out of reclaimed timber and pallets because everything was done on a budget um it was painted in a variety of whites off cuts from the uh, extension and the wiring was put in by yours truly and i had to probably change the fuse box every other week because it get going um, but that was until I discovered that actually the cable in the ground had a, had a hole in it and it was sucking up water. But uh, no, it served its purpose for, gosh, we moved out of there in from 2010 for four to 13 years. We're in that shed. And in that time, the shed basically tripled in size. Because as right. my um, collection grew, um, I needed more and more room to store it. So to begin with, we put an extension on the side of the building. And uh, that was basically to house the terrain and the figures I'd accumulated. Yeah. And I paid for the same shed people to come in to put the extension on as the, the original people. And I think the original shed cost me £4,000, which was, what, 15, 16 years ago was quite a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I had a concrete base already there. I put a new concrete base in, which I paid for, and the extension cost almost as much as the original shed no. because it was not quite increasing it by double it, but two-thirds. But, of course, prices have gone up. Yeah. Um, but after I saw these guys put it in, I thought, you know what? I can manhandle a, a chainsaw. <laughs> um, I can use a hammer. Any other future shed extensions, I'm doing myself. Yeah. And that's what we did. And so I was very lucky as my kids grew up the garden became used less and less so i was able to take over the area where the trampoline was so i put a 12 foot by 12 foot extension on the next bit of the shed and that became another storage area and a workshop and then by the end of 2019 so two years before we moved out i put a side extension on so i could widen the table and truly have a six foot wide table so um yeah, and my wife thought I was completely mad, but uh, I used to go down there, even in the depths of winter, had no heating in there. I was um, say. It was LED, it was fluorescent tube lit. It was it was insulated, but it, you know, 
we certainly couldn't play in there in January and February. It was just too cold. So, yeah, the old shed then, um, as you were saying, no heating. And um, I think a, a lot of people listening to this show will have, will have memories. I certainly do, um, of uh, being in sheds and being absolutely freezing cold. And I know my mate Simon, uh, Simon Weinberger, listens to the show. Um, and his dad used to have a garage at the back of their house where he used to do a bit of work in. Um, but it was huge. We could get a massive table in. But I, I remember nearly freezing to death in there uh, <laughs> on occasion. Um, and in the, in the summer, it was that hot. We had to have the doors open. But in the winter, it was so cold that, you, you know, you had to. Um, Simon's mum, bless her, would always bring us hot drinks and stuff to keep us going. So yep. it, was a, it was a lovely place to be. So, um so you were in the old shed for what did you say, ten years or so? No, it would have been at least. Um, I'm just thinking in terms of three, about fourteen, fifteen years. So, uh, so it served its purpose. It was mm. a wonderful den. I miss it dearly. Um, <laughs> when we emptied it, I have to say there was a lump in my throat yeah. um, because I think it's something that started as nothing, and when it finished. Um, to give you a scale of how much came out of that shed, it took me hiring a Luton van wow. plus six of my mates with full cars, and I still couldn't empty the contents of the shed. Wow. And we the tables were so big. The thing in the old house in my old house, to get to the shed you had to go through the house. We had no side access to the back garden. Yeah. So everything had to go in and out of the house. And the tables, even though I'd rebuilt my tables on casters and I configured them in such a way that I could do different arrangements on the table, they were too big unless they were dissembled to get out of the house. So in the end, I broke the tables up. I've now repurposed them as workshop tables in my garage. But um, effectively, um, it meant that I could build new tables in the new shed but literally to get everything out. And when we moved it all into the new place, it the, the old shed just looked really sad. Um, <laughs> it looked empty and it just felt like the end of an era. And I've mentioned that the sad story earlier in, the, um, the, in our discussions, um, I had a text from the guy who bought the house um, mm -hmm. Actually, he was sent it on a general chat across the street, the WhatsApp group that I used to belong to on the street, saying, did anybody know a somebody who'd come around and fit a shed felt roof because the roof on his shed had just literally been lifted off? Oh, um, no. And I thought, my poor building, yeah, he's got somebody else to go in. Whereas I did all the renovation work and all the refurb work, in, and I replaced that roof probably three times over its 15-year life because, of course, felt never lasts. Um, so yeah, it was a bit sad, but uh, it was uh, it was a great <laughs> place to hang out with my friends. Excellent. So um, I think uh, a story I'd like to sort of go into, if we may, is the um, you're obviously you're moving from your house um, where you were um, yep. out to where you are now, uh, and obviously there's a process of house hunting involved. Yes, and uh, listeners may well be. Um, 
uh, used to the program on BBC called Escape to the Country. Yes. Uh, and I often wonder on there, uh, one day they're going to get somebody who's a war gamer who's looking for the ideal war games room or war game show. Yep. So how much how much of a of a part did that play in your choosing your new property? It played a in my mind it played a major part. I have to be very careful because my my biggest supporter in everything that I do is my wonderful wife Katie. Yeah. Uh, so I have to be careful what I say here but because she's almost certainly going to be listening at some point in time. But um Katie and I we um, we'd made a decision probably back in 2019 that we we got to a point in our lives where our children had both gone to university um, or were at university that we felt that we'd outgrown the area that we lived in um, and we wanted to change you know it, it was yeah. our second journey in our life and so we wanted to move out of the suburbs to have something with a little bit more land where Casey could keep bees and chickens um, yeah. and I could effectively think less about sitting in front of a computer all day working and and trying to do more say well-being work i working outside and doing whatever yeah um and we were in a very fortunate position where financially we could sell our home and i could take early retirement at almost at the same time and then yeah. of course covid happened um which put basically put Bugger, you know, planned up every, you know, buggered up everything. Yeah. But as soon as the COVID restrictions were lifted, we started in earnest to look. Mm. And originally, we were looking to move further west. Um, out, and we were in the process of buying a place um, just outside Bath, and it was a holiday centre, for want of a better word. It had a house, it had four holiday lets, it had a big garage. The guy was massively into Ford Capris, and he had two Ford Capris oh, wow. in the garage, and it had a couple of other outbuildings and. The garage mm. was a perfect opportunity for me to have my new shed there. Um, and the outbuildings would be great. And, of course, the accommodation on site would mean that friends could come down. Plus, we could talk about, as we will talk about, the Shed Wars experience in a second. And so it gave us the opportunity to do this. But as we progressed with the sale, our solicitors kept coming back and saying, look, the guy who's built all these holiday lets doesn't seem to have planning permission for any of them. Oh, no. Saying that he had. He was a builder. He said, oh, I've got all the building regulations. I've got all these signed off. You know, my, my friends in the council, you know, it's all approved. and everything. But because he couldn't provide the evidence, we literally pulled the plug after spending quite a lot of money on surveys and everything. Yeah. Uh, just yeah. pulled the plug on the place. And we were in this awful position or good position, I should say, from some people's concern, where we effectively agreed a sale on our house in Surbiton. Mm. And uh, so we didn't really want to lose the, the buyer our own home so we had to find somewhere damn quick and so we started looking a little bit closer to home because of course at the end of the day traipsing out the west all the time was was wearing us out and the toll and so on and we wanted to find somewhere even if it was a stopgap. and by chance my wife found the property details of the place that we're now in just outside the m25 um mm. woking and uh we turned up on this site. It's a rundown single-story bungalow with two annexes, three outbuildings, and an office in the garden. And I, as soon as we came here, the house is completely derelict. hasn't been lived in for two years. <laughs> the plumbing doesn't work. The heating doesn't work. Um, one of the annexes is habitable, which we're now living in. Um, mm. But 
it had this enormous potential because it was sitting in its own 10-acre plot of land, oh, um, covered in trees, and it had this office. And the office is a good, what, 400 square feet? So it's, it's more than that. It's about 600 square feet. So it's got this, I've got this, and it was going to be my games room. There was no doubt. There was no discussing it. My missus wanted to turn it into an Airbnb. Um, and I said, no, because we'd have to have planning for that. I said, this is my new games room. Um, and it was absolutely disgusting. But it had its own central heating, had a kitchen unit that probably hadn't been cleaned for about 15 years um, and a, its own separate bathroom. And so I just fell in love with a, the game room, but more importantly, I fell in love with the whole premise of where we are now. Um, so the games room was secondary, but I won the golden ticket without a shadow. <laughs> um, and I kid you not, I look, I'm sitting in the room now. It's got its own Wi-Fi. I've got a big screen TV on the wall. This is the man cave that I'd always ever dreamt of. Um, and wow. I just count myself incredibly lucky that I have it. And one of the reasons why we moved out and I took early retirement was I wanted to do something different. And I'm very passionate about wanting to share my hobby with other people. Um, I also like to think I'm a pretty good host, as yeah. in looking after people, you know, whining, dining, feeding them. Or we've got a very big social group of friends, not just gamers. Um, although we try to keep them separate because you know some of my some of my normal friends might not <laughs> think oh, like yeah. friends are normal or not. No. When, um, when you suddenly suddenly they start start. Um sort of discussing which was the best um, version, the Panzer three or something yeah. like that at a table. It might not. You know, uh, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law have both accepted me for who I am, but, you know, that's yeah. probably as far as it goes. But um, it's, no, we are incredibly lucky here. And I've always wanted to, I said to Katie, when we were looking to move, I said, wherever we go, we this is the next journey in our lives. And I want to have somewhere where we can host friends, family, both of us got relatively big families. But also, I have visions of big Christmases. My kids are now at an age where perhaps in the next five, 10 years, they might have their own children. So we want them to be able to come back, have their space for their, their kids to run around in and so on. But I said, ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, there's only so much money in the pot and we've got to do something. And mm. so we were always looking for a new home that had accommodation that we could rent out mm. with Airbnbs. The location of where we are is wonderful. We are, as I said earlier, we're 10 to 15 minutes from Heathrow on a good day. Mm -hmm. We've got Kempton Racecourse just down the road. We've got Royal Wisley just down the road, Ascot just down the road. God knows how many golf clubs around us. You know, there's lots going on in this part of southwest mm. London. Yeah. So, and we've already discussed with, um, we've got the McLaren Technology Centre where they build the racing cars literally far away. Oh, yeah, yeah. Down yeah the road. Far away. So, there's lots of places, lots of high-end industries and so on operating around here. And uh, we are of a mindset that we are going to do Airbnbs, but also short-term lets. So, for example, um, we've already uh, put together a letter where we're going to go to McLaren and the likes and say, look, if you've got people coming over from overseas working with you for two, three months, they don't necessarily want to stay in a hotel. They want You want a short-term let or what have you. So we would. the idea is that Katie and I will live in the main house, and we will have our annexes rented out on the dates that we want to rent them out. So Christmases, New Year's, when we want to have our big social gatherings, we'll be able to do that. So not long term. But also, I saw an opportunity where effectively I can share my passion with other people out there. Mm, so yeah. people can come along to play big games on a big table 
stay on site, enjoy my hospitality for a notional price so it's a bit like you know the holiday center where you know when i was listening to somebody on a podcast it may well have been one of your podcasts the mm. guys from the holiday war game center they did a deal with the hotel you know people yeah. stayed in the hotel and yeah. so on um well we can offer on-site accommodation for up to eight people you know so we'll have effectively four double rooms um you know so husbands can bring their wives along and the shed will be open for people to to use with me hosting as their games master for the playroom. And that's the goal. Um, so the Shared Wars experience was born out of that. It's not, doesn't have to be a financial driver in my life. So I don't have to fill up spaces, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we can't put, and at the moment, Katie and I are going through the um, building plans for how we're going to renovate the house. So we're gutting the house. We've already had all the ceilings taken out. We've got the builders coming in in March. We're now still tinkering around with the edges in terms of how we're going to lay out the property because they're all joined together. Mm. But eventually, by Christmas of this year, because that's when I committed to my children when the work would be done. So by December the 18th of 2024, if you're listening, Molly and Sam, the house <laughs> will be done. Sam, yeah. you will not have to sleep in the shed this year. Uh, he slept in the shed last year. Oh, good lad. <laughs> good lad. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the idea is that, the, 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 you know, my passion, my hobby, my toys, my tables are up for rent. Brilliant. Brilliant. And we've also looked at it in a couple of other different ways, that we are very happy to become what I would call family-centric from a games point of view. There must be fathers who used to play games when they were in their – 20s or 30s and have got children now because they're in their 40s i would love to give their kids a war games experience mm. that's not going to break the bank so i'm happy to you know and we will have all the crb checks and everything else what i won't do is do kids i'm, I'm not going to do kids parties that's just a nightmare no. scenario no yeah um, uh, i do maybe seeing other people's where, kids is not a good idea no whereas i do envisage a scenario where a father and perhaps his two young teenage sons might come down for the weekend and mm. play a game that that to yeah. me is um we also one of the things that i did now this might have been three years ago i got involved with the waterloo uncovered charity um, mm. I went up to Glasgow to umpire the great game, the big yeah, the game. Yeah, yeah. And I was talking to a number of the guys in the charity, and they are always looking for things for veterans to do with PTSD or yeah. guys who've lost limbs or what have you. Now, we're very fortunate. The property we bought is all single story, so it's going to be hopefully wheelchair-friendly by the time it's all sorted out and everything else. We'd have to make some modifications to the shed, and my table might be a little bit too high for somebody who perhaps is in a chair. But we would be looking to effectively offer weekends to people like that from a charitable point of view. So, you know, they might pay some form of peppercorn rent to cover our costs on cleaning mm -hmm. and everything. But I would open the doors up for those sorts of people to come down and mm -hmm. play to give them an ex a different sort of experience. Because the guys at Waterloo Uncovered were saying that, they had all these people digging all day in the dirt in around uh, outside Hougamore. And then they come back mm -hmm. in the evening and they sit there and either play a war game or they'd be painting soldiers. And they got so much out of it. And so this is again, another opportunity for me and my wife to put something back into the community, mm. you know, that we perhaps, you know, you know, we we're now in a privileged position to be able to do so. So yeah. I don't see it as just as hard and war game is turning up. 
I also want to make it more than that and to help broadcast the industry. And then the final thing is that because we've got this big plot of land and we've got a house that's falling down, we signed up with a film locations company. Oh, right. And we've already had one film produced on site. Um, I can't say what and when, yeah. um, but at some point in time we will disclose that. But we've had half a dozen location directors come down here, all of whom have actually fallen in love with what we've got and the proximity to the likes of Pinewood and Shepparton. But um, they've all used been into my shed because my shed appropriately named is now the green room as well because we would use this for where the cast and what have you can do their makeup because i can clear all the tables back and put chairs and tables in here but they've all come in on days where i've had games set up and they've mm -hmm. all gone absolutely nuts about seeing this big table set up with all these toy soldiers and they've mm -hmm. all said if there's any ever something that we wanted to do with toy soldiers we know exactly where to come now oh fantastic! you never know so you never um, know Oh, it's brilliant because um, it's a it's appeared a couple of times, hasn't it? In in films, I remember it was on Callan, the yes. um, thing with Edward Woodward. Um, and I'm, I'm sure there's a couple. It was there was an episode of um, Peter Cushing did something as well. Yeah, Peter Cushing. And then did there something. was the Monica the Glen. Do you remember the Monica with Richard? I remember Bryant. that. Yes, yes, yes. And he had in his billiards he room did. a battle set up. Yeah, yeah, and there was a. And was it old tricks? I can't remember. It was James yes, new Bowen. Tricks, new tricks with Pete Dennis Waterman and uh, yeah. Oh God, um, who's the guy from? It was the um. Oh God, James Bolan. Yeah, James Bolan yeah. was the or was it the other one who's absolutely it was the memory Derek Lane, Memory Lane. He was called yes. in the show. Yeah. Yeah. He he was into wargaming as well. So yeah, it, yeah. So and you I never think, know. You but the Shedwars experience at this moment in time, um, we have, it's, it's soft launch. The website went live um, back in the summer. I invited Andy, Callan and Dan and Nick Air came down from North Star Games um, for a weekend. Um, and we played a big War of the Roses game because at the end of the day, I wanted to put it onto the map in the same way that, you know, I'm, I'm having a conversation with you guys. I'm not pr pushing it at the moment because my life is so busy with the refurb of the house and the gardens that haven't been touched for God knows how long. If somebody phones me up tomorrow and says, Giles, we're really interested in putting on a game, I'd be absolutely delighted to hear from them. But unfortunately, I cannot offer the accommodation. Amount. But there are plenty of hotels to suit all budgets in the area. But we yeah. are, we're open for business. So we'll delve a bit into a few details of, yes, of course. kind of the setup and everything. Um, a surprising you a surprising number of people are in a similar position um you know um i don't know if you know dom uh, from boots on the table he's got a shed in his his garden uh, fraser from uh, von ketching he's got a shed in his garden a few people that we've spoken to on the show uh, and and i think the, the you know i'm not uh, saying I don't get a young audience, but I don't get a young audience. Um, a lot of people who listen to this show are kind of, you know, in the same situation as ourselves at retirement age or approaching retirement age and may be able to put together uh, a games room in a shed or, 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 a, or a room within the house uh, in the near future. So you've got, just describe this process then. You've come into the new house. Yes. You've seen this office. Yes. 
Um, and I think from the pictures I saw on your blog, it still had loads of office kit in it. Is yeah, that right. Um, it's all now cleared. Yeah, I, I can. I need to update some pictures. The pictures on the website are pretty much of games, but yes, the the new shed is now completely decked out. But I can talk yeah. you through what's in here yeah. and how it works. So, so yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of thinking of a of, of a person coming. We've got this blank space. What am I going to do with it? How am I going to get a table? How am I going to put that together? How am I going to work my storage? Um, just talk us through your process for, for that. Okay, so when we took possession of this property, um, the, 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 the sad fact is the chap who used to live here sadly passed away mm. of COVID. Um, his family were all based overseas, um, didn't want anything in the property. So when we bought it, we bought it lock, stock and barrel, mm. right down to some fairly personal effects that he left by his bedside table in the glass jar. Yeah. Um, anyway, to cut a long story short, we had to empty the office. So we've got a clearance company in. Um, it took them two days to remove everything. There were even computers on in the office and God knows how long they'd been running for. Um, and we had to literally lift a carpet that was, oh, you know, it was absolutely disgusting. Um, mm. And it, it, there, it was filthy everywhere. And it's never been decorated. The, the previous owner ran a kitchens business, stroke bathroom business out of this building. Um, he had two ladies working for him. I don't know how they managed to put up with it. But anyway, to cut a long story short, it was this, it was filthy. Half the lights were shot. The electrics were shot. Um, and the only thing of saving grace was that he had a new boiler put in for the central heating mm. in the shed. Yeah. Um, even the toilet flush broke after the first day. So God. it was a case of how do I prioritize it? Well, the first thing we did, as I said, we emptied it. And once it was emptied, I then had to bring my entire collection in here. So I had to work around my collection. There's a picture, isn't there? Right? Sorry to yeah. put in, but there's a picture on your blog, isn't there, of all your collection piled yes. up in the middle of the room. Uh, that was people going to have it. a look there at that. some of it in the garage as well. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. So I then had to work around that. And the starting point is like all good things. And even like painting figures, actually painting figures, I go from top bottom up, but I went from top down. So yeah. literally ceilings got repainted. Um, all the old lights came down. I replaced all the lights with LEDs um, using the existing wiring in here. I got an electrician in who was doing some wiring in the main house to come and check the fuse board. That all worked. Um, and so literally from top to bottom, completely repainted the whole thing. Mm. Once that was done, we then turned our attention to floor. I don't like spending money unless I have to. Um, yeah. So I then spent the next week scouring the likes of Wix, B&Q, Selco and everywhere else to try and find the very best deal I could on flooring. Mm. And I put a brand new laminate floor down with membrane. Um, and I got a friend of mine to come over one weekend and he and I laid the whole thing in a weekend. Oh, excellent. And floor lane party. Sorry? A floor lane party. A floor lane party. It was just me and him, and our knees were shot to bits at the end of it. <laughs> I kid you not, I could hardly walk for a week. Um, then we got the plumbing sorted out, so the new bathroom switch, so I put a new loo in and a new sink in, um, and we ripped out the old kitchen. Mm. There's like a kitchen unit in here. with, And we... My wife and I moved into the annex, but the the kitchen in the annex was pretty disgusting. Mm. So the kitchen that we took out of the annex where we lived, I kept all the units and all the doors, mm. and I recycled them to build the kitchen unit down here. Uh -huh. 
Well done. And so again, the chap who helped me put the floor down, he's as he's talented, you know, when it comes to using wood turtles and what have mm. you. Um, and he and I basically reassembled the old kitchen down here after I painted it all up with proper kitchen paint. So that all went in. Um, and then effectively I was then left with an empty room. And what do I do? Well, one of the things that I was very clear in my mind was that I did not want to do what I had in my old shed, which was literally have wall to ceiling racking everywhere. Um, so you can probably see in the picture, I know people who are talk, listening can't, but you can see b behind uh, me, there are pictures on the walls. Yeah. I had no pictures on the walls in my last place because it was right. all shelving. Yeah. And if I turn the camera around, you can see there is wall space, more pictures, yeah. bookshelves, big TV, there's the table, and it goes all the way around. So I was quite clean, clear in my mind that what I wanted to do, Ken, was to have a games room that felt open or office-like. So the big cabinets behind me are floor-to-ceiling metal cabinets that I recycle from the old office, and they are full of all my figures. Right, yeah. So, I've so got they're, not, about... they're, not on, they're not like a display cabinet all around the room, which is like... No. A, um, uh... All my figures, unless they're cavalry, go in plastic clear A4 boxes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, does that... So Yeah, we like that. Yeah, and they are just the right height for men with spears. Yep. Yeah, perfect. So they keep the dust off, but also they're nice and easy to pull out and they're all of a standard size. Um, so storage for figures was sorted. The tables, again, to keep the cost down, I took six doors off the main house because they're all going to get re they're all going to come down. And the six doors became my work, my tabletops. Wow, brilliant. They're six foot six by two foot, two and a half foot wide. Hmm. So all the tables got chopped down to six foot. Yep. left at two and a half foot wide. And then effectively, I then built wooden frames with casters on the bottom of them. With And some have got two shells, some have got three shells. But I didn't put the shells in until I bought all of the plastic boxes to store on my terrain. So all my terrain is under the table. Oh, perfect. And perfect. two units, I've got what I would call all the basic terrain that you'd need for any game. So trees, buildings, roads fences mm. yeah walls the stuff that you use all the time yeah. and then another two units have got all my exotic paraphernalia all my ancient egyptian stuff and bits and pieces mm. that you hardly ever use and then i've got another unit which looks a bit like a um oh god how would i describe it it's like a wine rack six yeah. foot long to hold my battle mats that i've made myself yeah so i've made all my mats out of canvas with flock and uh mastic and god knows what else on them so i've got desert ones and green ones and snow ones and so on and they slide in and out one of the tables and the table configuration means i can i can get an 18 foot table in here but at the moment it's configured for 17 feet because that is the room is 18 feet wide so i need at least a foot at the other end to yeah, get around get around, get around yeah <laughs> and then the rest of it really is just a case of how do i make my guests feel comfortable so i've got six barstools all bought on ebay for less than 15 quid each you can buy them Perfect. because normally when somebody they buy them in sets of four but when three two break you don't want the other two so other people just chucking them out um i've got some cheap old rugs on the floor to keep the dead in the sound i've got two smaller tables and casters that can go behind 
to hold all the casualties or what have you, or to de deployment troops, but can also be pressed into action for a big U-shaped table. Mm. Um, and then the rest of it's just bookcases. And then I've got a little hallway where all my board games are. So effectively, and then I've put around the room to give it, for want of a better word, a man cave feel. Um, we've got, there's half a dozen posters up of big movies ranging from War of the Worlds to Spartacus to Excalibur to, of course, Zulu, Conan the Barbarian, and so on. So I've tried to make it as open and as light as possible. And lighting for me, even in my old shed where I had um, fluorescent tubes, I went over, overboard. Light, you can never have too much lighting on a war games yeah. table. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes sometimes it can be quite dingy. I mean, I've I've got um, natural light um, stuff in here, and it makes a massive difference. It's nothing yeah. worse than playing in a dingy where you're trying to find your figures. <laughs> so lighting is key, clearly, and for comfort of my guests and and the people who come around and play, we've got it's got its own separate WC um, attached to the building, so we're plumbed in. I've got the kettle, got the um, the only thing I haven't put in here at the moment is a, is a microwave, but I'm really reluctant to have hot food in the shed. Yeah. That's hot. the one thing because it's hot. not to everybody's taste. Yeah. So, uh, and, and of course, I've got a beer fridge as well. So, uh, oh, perfect. Absolutely yeah. perfect. So, did you, um, you've gone with mats. Did you think about doing sculpted terrain? Um, yeah. There's obviously a weight issue there. What was, what drew you to mats instead? Um, right. So, I've gone through three iterations of bases for my games. Mm. My very first bases used to be 50 by 50 square centimeter square MDF boards yeah. covered in the old green mat that um, Games Workshop and likes oh, yes. Ormby used to sell. I used to cut and stick them down onto there. Um, I then went, that became an issue because it was less flexible to to put things like everything sat all my terrain sits on top of the baseboards if mm, that makes sense yeah, yeah so my roads my rivers my hills my mountains all sit on top of whatever the base mat is um the mdf boards were starting to show their age after 12 13 years they're starting to wear down um starting to fray they were too bulky too busy and i was also then getting into desert warfare snow warfare and so i just thought it's just too much so I needed a solution that was going to be smaller, lighter, and so on. Um, so then I played with fleeces. So I bought probably every green fleece known to man, from Dunelm to <laughs> Alibaba. Um, and I've still got quite a few of them, actually, because the colours are fabulous on some of them. Yeah. Um, but, uh, again, the fleeces, they end up collecting everything, like all the static grass and the clump foliage and what have you, and you can never mm. get them clean and washed yeah. the same way that they arrived at. And then I was watching a YouTube video of these people creating their own battle mats. Yes. Yeah. On four by six battle mats or four by eight. I thought, I wonder if I could scale that up to an 18 foot table. So yeah. I, and you do nine by six, two nine by sixes. And so, yeah, the decorators cloth, the um, vast amounts of emulsion paint and PVA. And uh, what's the stuff called? I've completely forgot. It's the stuff that you used to seal windows with mastic and what have you. Yeah. And basically yeah. mix up in a big pot, chuck in a whole load of sand, and Bob's your uncle spread it all over the mat, let it dry. It takes about three days to dry, and then uh, paint it up in different colours and then flock it. Um, it's a messy job. 
I wouldn't want to, but if I did it again, I'd do it now outside or, or undercover. But um, they've been absolutely, my green mats have been going now for four years and haven't oh, let me down. Perfect. And they roll up afterwards. There's no, there's a bit of breakage on my desert ones, but they, I, they were so good that one of my friends said, could I make some for him? So he came around one weekend and we cracked out two mats for him in one weekend, let him dry over, overnight in the old shed. Oh, and fantastic. he's still using his as well. And then when we need to go on to do a really big game, he'll lend me his. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, but again, that, there's a post on that on the blog. But if yeah. you just search up, um, you know, homemade battle mats, it, it's it's an investment. I reckon each mat costs about £100 to do in material mm. and time. Yeah. Oh, in terms of materials. But they're so much cheaper and so much better than the um, the cloth ones you buy. I don't like the cloth mats. No, they're they they're a they're a, a use they're a useful tool to have and they're easy to do. Um but I've I've recently invested in some proper old school sculpted terrain, which is a pain in the ass to carry around, but yes. um, it looks so much better. Uh, so I just reserved that for demos at shows um and used mats on the table for ordinary games, if you like. Um but I was interested to kind of hear your thoughts on how you came round to that decision so that's interesting too and then no. hills because of course the problem that when you've got a really big flat surface yeah no battlefield is ever flat mm. ever Some good so hills. what i have got in the garage is a whole load of pre-built slopes out of hardboard with risers on them which i can slide under to give a really big long ridge yeah underneath the mat so you can get the table where it actually curves over like a tent or one side of it. Or I've got a whole load of hills that I've actually physically made up and I've used the same flock and the same technique to make the hills out of polystyrene. And they're, they're, but they're not, you know how sometimes war games hills can be six inches by four inches? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not a hill. That's a lump or a yeah. bump. Yeah. You know, a hill in my mind has got to be four foot long. Yeah. It might not be. It. Well, it might only be six inch, you know, six centimeters tall, but it's a it's a large rise, and that's what I've got. And they're all mounted on hardboard, so they can sit flat and proud on the on the oh. base. Um, so you've all you're all damp proofed, and you've got your central heating in there, which is ideal. Central heating, damp proof. We know that the heating's working because I came out the other day and it was minus five outside. I left the heating on overnight, which I'm not supposed to do. But I didn't want the pipes to freeze, and there was still frost on the roof, which means it's insulated quite well. Perfect. Much better than the days of freezing in the old shed, then. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> you can abandon your house, and at least you know that the game's really Well, as I said, uh... my, my, this time last year, we, we just moved into the house, and mm. we had the family over at Christmas. And because the annex where my wife and I are, are living has only got one small spare bedroom, my daughter was in there, and my son, because it had central heat, my son was in the shed. And oh. we hadn't even done any of the refurb work, so he had a single bed on a really ropey old carpet with yeah. a big pile of my war games material and a single light fitting. So, yeah. So oh. it's, it's not really fit for human um, habitation then, but I'd be a lot happier if he stayed in here now. Yeah. So um, when you get up and running then, what, uh, I mean... You, you're up and running now, but when you are you, are you planning to advertise theme weekends or yes. how what so what periods are you going to have available? 
so there, there, there are two ways of looking at this, Ken. The first one is somebody comes to me and says, I'm really interested in refighting your ex. Yeah. Like they've seen something on the blog and they say, can I do this? Hmm. Or we really want a games weekend that, you know, we've got our own figures, for example, can we just come and use a shed? You know, that's no problem yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, the alternative is that I plan to have what I would call themed weekends and weekdays because of course we're all of an age where a lot of people yeah, have got time yeah, off exactly so it's and it's beneficial for me probably to rent this out in the week rather than the weekends because i get a better rate of return for the airbnbs at the weekend than i would do during the week so there's an we've got to work it out but in a nutshell there will be themed events so i'll give you three different examples one could be invasion mm. invasion britain so you could do a romans versus celts invasion game um which could be for example the roman attack on uh, uh the isle of anglesey mm. so mona it could then follow with a saxons versus vikings or versus normans 1066 game so i've refought fulford stanford bridge and hastings they're already they're, they can literally be lifted straight out of the box and then the third one could be a VBCW style game, but based on Operation Sea Lion, for argument's sake. So that could be your invasion weekend. So you're going to get three games over, say, a day and a half. So half a day for each game. Because I think if people are paying money, they probably want to experience lots of different things. Mm. A bit like when you go to a theme park, you don't just go on the same ride over and over again. You want to do a breadth. Unless you are fighting a specific game, a battle. So, for example, Hastings could well be an all-day game. It could be. Yeah. It doesn't have to be. So one could be invasion. One might be the civil wars. So again, that would be Wars of the Roses, English Civil War, and then again, say VBCW, very British Civil War. Or it could be the Jacobite Rebellion or what have you. Although I haven't got any Scots at the moment. American War of Independence would be a civil war to all intents and purposes. Um, then you've got colonials. So I could easily do Sudan, Zulus, Afghanistan. Mm over a week weekend or you could do three battles from the zulu wars you could do the iconic date of whatever it is january something or other for you could do salawana and then followed by rock's drift that one day which which we've done over a weekend and it's it's great fun and you know that the brits are going to get beaten in salawana you just got to enjoy yourself yeah that's, that's <laughs> they cannot win yeah and yeah. we played it three times the way that we stay that set the game up, it's about dying gracefully and dying with honour and getting getting the flags off. But everybody expects the Zulus to win. Rooks drift another matter altogether. So yes, there could be different themes. Um, it could all be centred around one period, or it could be centred across lots of different periods. Mm. What I can guarantee is that most of the games would have already been re would have been played before, and therefore I've, the learnings come from that in terms of how they yeah. should be set up, how they should be balanced and what I would be expecting and how I judge the game to be going. Mm. And again, because I wouldn't be participating, I'd be umpiring and keeping it moving, because that's the other thing is a yeah. pet hate is where games stagnate. So Dan was very, very kind in his article in the War Games Illustrated about me as a host. He said that Giles is capable of herding cats across a battlefield. It's very much about keeping the pace of the game moving, keeping everybody engaged keeping the momentum flowing because some people take longer than others and you've got to recognize that because you don't want to force them down that route but yeah. at the same time 
you don't want somebody sitting at the other end of the table scratching themselves because they mm. can't actually do anything. No, a, so, a good a good game host is essential when it comes to the to the big games and having somebody there who knows the scenario, who knows the rules, who um, is a little bit of an outgoing personality uh, in terms of being able to g people up and motivate people, etc., um, is, is is essential and adds, to, as you say, adds to the experience rather than you know waiting for two hours for people to set up and then. <laughs> but it's, it's not just that; it's also it's also being prepared to be firm. Yeah. Because there are some people, you know, the, the classic rules law. You know, I don't know who might walk across the threshold of yeah. my door, but there will be rules lawyers out there. And I make it very clear when when we when we play on a typical Monday night, we have some fairly simple house rules. And that is, if it's within an inch, it's probably okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not having any of this minutiae of people moving around something just so they get the nth degree of in range or out of range. If they're within an inch doesn't matter yeah sort of scenario um we won't tolerate anybody for want of a better word cheating yeah yeah you know there's a one strike and you're out scenario yeah, you know exactly. it's never had to be embraced mm. but mm. there are people out there who try to push the boundaries mm. and you've just got to be firm in those scenarios but at the same time you can always do it with a smile on your face yeah and we're all here to have fun and we're, we're, we're having fun with actually, which isn't with, about a subject which actually has other connotations. It isn't that, you know, war isn't fun. Yeah. But does that, I, I, so there's yeah. that balance. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's an important thing to, to do. And, and certainly when people are coming um, for a, a holiday, which, which yes. it will be for, for many people, they want to enjoy it. Um, and they don't want to be sat there for two hours while somebody argues about paragraph 5.2.3.7 uh breach loading skirmishes um no. lying down behind hedges or something like that it it, it, it you have to push the game on uh, for enjoyment's sake um and with that there are people who that isn't an enjoyable game they want the minutiae in there and the exact um slavery to the rules if you like um, and it's important for the host to make sure that it keeps running well for everybody and not just for one individual. And in a convivial, jovial, yeah. friendly fashion. Because I, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you, one of my concerns is that when you have groups of people, to, and if they're all from the same club, mm. and you know, the idea is that we are offering discounts if somebody makes a block booking, Yeah. Um, so it'd be it's much easier to handle six people who all know each other oh that's the other thing i should add is that i'm capping any game at six because i can't manage more than six people plus the fact i don't think six more than six people in in my room would be should we say not socially acceptable but it would it not it would, won't feel cramped yeah but it's but everybody will get a good frontage title everybody will get a meaningful day you start putting more bodies in just to, to whack up the fees that it, it tends to fall apart and also you can't give them the one-to-one -one attention that they might want so as a good host i've got to be able to manage every everybody's needs so it's very much a case of six people it's about being the good host it's about ensuring that all the other sorts of things are lined up properly like food and drinks and mm. you know breaks and what have you so people don't feel that they're in a pressured environment they're there to spend their money and have good uh, have a good time and want to come back again that that's what it's all about
Fantastic. That's exactly what we like to like to hear. Um, so where can people see this information then? So you, let's go to your blog first. What's the, the okay. address for your blog? So if you go to the Shed Wars blog, there is a tab running across the top. I think there are only four or five tabs at the moment. One <laughs> is uh, the Shed Wars experience. Yep. Um, another one is all about me, which I desperately need to update now I've spoken to you. Um, <laughs> one is all about our escapades in the War of the Roses. So if yep. you're ever interested in finding any of the War of the Roses battles, they're all listed there. And another one is uh, my terrain building exploits, which I really focused on about five, six years ago. So if you want to build anything from hills to buildings, they're all there. But the Shed Wars experience is listed there, which takes you straight through to a link. The Shed Wars experience is shedwars.co.uk so um, it's not um the shed wars experience Mm. as somebody pointed out to me if you type that in your office bots might close you down because the word (laughs) sex is in there Um, but actually it's under shedwars.co.uk um the shed wars experience um rather tongue-in-cheek my strap line is how war games should be fought um but i'm fighting war game you know Certainly my experience with all the guys I've ever played with, they've all had great fun. Mm. And that, to me, is what it's about. Exactly. It's about having fun mm. um, in a good environment with, you know, with your toy soldiers. So Shedwood's experience takes you through to the website. It really is very simple from there. You can contact me. You, you can go on the site, have a look at all the different examples of games that can go on, mm. pictures. The blog clearly works alongside that. So there's lots and lots of examples of play albeit not in the new shed on the website um and there's also a rough guide to prices and prices are typically starting at 40 pound a day yeah for a game those gaming now that excludes accommodation but does include drinks a snack and what have you and i think for 40 quid that's pretty reasonable can't argue with that can't argue with even from your and that is typically a midweek now if you want to start extending it into the weekend or longer games or what Mm. have you then there's a different cost but as i said it's not about making a lot of money out of this because it's never going to make a lot of money a bit full to think of it that way but it's about me sharing the cost of my hobby and ultimately at the end of the day if it helps me to put more plastic on the table then great perfect absolutely perfect um well, I shall definitely put links to both your blog and the Shed Wars experience um, in the show notes for people. So um, you. if you're listening to this and you're interested, then uh, have a look at the show notes on wherever you're watching this, and there'll be a link that you can click and go directly to Giles's website, uh, which is fantastic. Um, so thank you very much for your time today, Giles. It's been um, fantastic. We have, we've had one technical hiccup so far. Uh, so we've not done too bad um, and I always finish the show with uh, offering you a chance to answer, ask me a question because I've bombarded you for three hours you don't have to but if you've got one I will answer it so it's not what is my pen number <laughs> <laughs> um, my question to you Ken is would you like to come down to the Shed Wars experience when we're up and running as my guest I would love to, mate. That would be fantastic. Thank well, you very much. The offer is there as my guest. So Lovely. once Thank we're you. up and running, you will be invited. Nice one. Thank you very much for that, mate. Much appreciated. And um, I'm at Salute this year. Will you be there? I will be there. Um, I can't guarantee whether I'll be there all day or not. Um, but uh, I will certainly, it's in my diary already. And my wife knows that she has to have the dog that day. So. Ah, fantastic. Well, I, I have. Um, 
volunteered myself. Um, I was going to take my Mentana game, my Italian Resorgimento game uh, down, but they wanted a naval game. So I'm taking Jutland down um, on a 32 by 8 foot table. Oh, fantastic. Well, Jutland holds a special memory in my heart because my mm. great grandfather was on, not my great, yeah, my great grandfather was on the Queen Mary. Fantastic. That sadly went down. Fantastic. So, uh, a, so we've that... actually got his bronze, my mum's got his bronze plaque still at home, you know, the thing that they issued out to all of the fallen. Wow. Well, um, there's, a, there's a website that came um, into my knowledge uh, on the 100th anniversary of Jutland when I was doing all the research for it. Um, and you can zoom into street level and, and see where people who were involved in the Battle of Jutland lived. Really? Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, and I I live in a, an old stone terrace at the end of a track, at the end of a road. Um, but as you come out of our road, past a church, there's some really old, small back-to-back -back proper Yorkshire terraces. And a stoker from HMS Brack Prince lived in one of those houses. Oh, fantastic. Could you send me the link of that if you still got it? I'll have to try and find it. I'll have to try and find it because I haven't looked at or it. Just a, or perhaps search guide and then I can, yeah. I can look at it from there. So, yeah, I should try and do that, mate, because it was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, so I will definitely try and dig that out for you. Um, but once again, thanks very much for your time, Giles. And it's been, Thank you. Uh, it's been great. And uh, just have to say goodnight to everyone. All right. Good night, everybody. Thanks good a lot. Night. Bye. Thanks. Bye. you enjoyed that chat there with Giles what a lovely guy and uh, a great host I'm sure so if you are interested in taking part in a big game as I've said with my friends Legendary War Games and uh, Mark Freeth at the War Games Holiday Centre this is your opportunity for quite a reasonable price to have a go at a big game if your circumstances uh, don't allow that at the moment usually at this point that I um, advertise the next guest on the show. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not able to do that because I'm currently juggling uh, three or four episodes worth of um, content. And um, it's a bit like herding cats, unfortunately. And a couple of people have been away and uh, at least one of the guests is not from the UK. So getting everything organised has been a bit tricky. The, I'm pretty sure that the, uh, the the episodes are going to happen. It's just that I've not been able to organise the recording as yet. And I do like to leave at least a couple of weeks between episodes anyway. Uh, so um, I'm hoping to have a couple of episodes out in February. But keep your eyes open and um, just in the future... I'm not going to give names away at this particular moment in time, but I've uh, I've got some really exciting guests coming up this year. Um, uh, I'm sure you will really enjoy them all. So thanks once again for listening to Yorkshire Gamer Podcast. Please leave a like, a review, a comment, any way you see this, just to uh, increase the profile. But until next time, see you.